Hello and welcome to the Survivor Historians, one of the top 20 Survivor podcasts on the internet. As always, I'm Mario Lanza. So does that make me part of one of the top 20 Survivor podcasting teams ever? I'm Jay Fisher, by the way. And uh, was that voted on officially by CBS.com? I'm Mike Bloom. <laughs> and we are here with a special show here. Um, we just finished up our... Uh, a recap of Survivor Palau, that is the 10th season, and we thought it would be fun to do a little kind of uh, retrospective here of Survivor the first 10 seasons. Basically where the franchise stood after Palau, what the fans thought of it, kind of where all the characters stood. Just basically, it's like a status report of what what the franchise was like after the first 10 seasons. So uh, do you guys have anything to uh, to add before we go into this? As um, One thing I want to add is we have a ton of listener questions, so there's going to be mostly listener questions on this, but we do want to do a little summary first. Do you guys have anything you want to start off with? I just can't believe that we made it through 10 seasons when you, you brought up the idea for the Survivor Historians, Mario, all those 30 years ago, <laughs> and we have slowly made our way through this thing, and uh, we're here now. I can't believe that we've... I can't believe that we got this far. I mean, re- realistically, I knew we would, but you know, we just we were we were at a real slow pace there for a while. So hey, kudos to us. I like the implication that we're we're not on a slow pace still. Oh my God, are you kidding me? <laughs> slightly, slightly faster pace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> when I mean accelerated, I mean you know, all of a sudden the Jungle Cruise is like rounded a corner, right? Like this, this is basically it. <laughs> Yeah, it's just really been great to be here all these 10 seasons with you, Jay, and it's been great that we've been here all together and the other guy, Mike, hasn't, so it's been great for us. Yeah, Mike, what's what's it like being so late to the party? I'm excited. I finally get to talk about Borneo through Pearl Islands without shoehorning in references. <laughs> yes, and of course, uh, we spill a malt liquor on the ground in our, uh, honor of our dear departed Paul, who could not be here today. We really wanted to get all four historians here, or all three historians, plus Mike, if you'd like to refer to it that way. But yeah, we, we couldn't get all four. We really tried. It just didn't happen, unfortunately. Rip, Paul, rip in pieces. Um, well, we miss you, buddy. Um, you shouldn't have died. <laughs> I'm not sure if he died. I did a search for him, but he's in Montana. They don't really have like records and stuff. Yeah, to be fair, I'm pretty sure the, the death certificates for Montanans come in like 20 years after the fact. Right. Okay, so we are going to get it right into this. Survivor at 10 seasons. Where did the franchise stand after Palau? And I'm going to uh, be a dick and put the temp on the spot. Temp, where did it stand? Well, uh, I, I think I touched upon this briefly at the end of our Palau recap, but at this point in Survivor history, it was a big precipice. I would say, you know, the last time you guys did this whole listener questions look back thing uh, was when you guys were treading water before All-Stars. And I think the first seven seasons are extremely different from the three that follow it. And All-Stars, Vanuatu, and Palau were such divisive seasons that 
you know, from a, from a production standpoint first, they start to throw in more twists and turns. We saw it with Palau. We're going to see it with Guatemala and Exile Island. But from a, a popularity and viewer standpoint, unfortunately, people were starting to get a little tired with Survivor. And, and we, you know, some, some commenters have brought up to us that I think between the Palau finale and the Guatemala premiere was like a 5 million viewer drop. And I think that's a little testament to the fact that, like, this is when the, the diehard fans really started to stick with the show, whereas those that were more casual, like, well, I've been watching this for five years, and uh, maybe it's time I check out something else on Thursday nights. First of all, that's actually not quite true when, in, in, if Wikipedia is to be believed. But um, I, I, I guess I have to agree with you. And don't, don't knock the treading water before All-Stars, Mike. That gave, that gave birth to Mike Bloom. So that's I, I, true. I, will, I will not have you knock that, by the way. I cannot bite the hand that feeds me. I'll admit to that. <laughs> But I, I think that that's true. I mean, a, a lot of people try to categorize Survivor because as we get more and more seasons and as the show sort of grows, you have to – I guess you don't have to, but people just naturally tend to put the show into different eras, you know, the this era, the this era, and stuff like that. And I think that people widely consider that first seven seasons pre-All-Stars – and I guess including All-Stars as well, that's kind of like the first era of the show. And and now that we've sort of entered into the quote-unquote second era of the show, this this midway thing, this this Vanuatu through, I don't know, the next fans versus favorites, I would almost put the mid-grade almost into the first season pre-Russell Hance, you know, kind of an era. But, you know, that's just me. But, uh, yeah, look, at, actually, I'm looking at this uh, ratings thing. It's the, the Palau finale was about 20 million viewers and the Guatemala premiere 18. So just a a 2 million drop, but it's all roughly the same. It's actually right after Guatemala. It's like the next few seasons where the ratings are actually going to by average, pretty much tank pretty badly. What's the Guatemala finale? Guatemala Guatemala finale is 21 million. So So it actually gains viewers. Well, it's the finale, right? Like the finale is going to have a slightly higher spike in Mm -hmm. viewership. Um, they have kind of an average over here on the left, and it looks like, you know, for the most part, Palau averaged about 20 million, almost 21 million viewers, and Palau and Guatemala is going to average about a little, a tick over 18. So it looks like Survivor lost about 3 million viewers from Palau to Guatemala. Yeah. But then Panama, the next season, Exile Island, is going to have 16.8, and then Cook Islands is 15.75, Fiji 14.83, so it's going to go down to 15, and then sort of around Micronesia, it's going to be about 13 and it's going to it's going to sort of hold around the 13 to 12 and that's sort of where it is today sort of about 12 a little above 10 million viewers the narrative that i've always kind of gone on and i've been using it through historians was that you know survivor was without a flaw for the first 7 seasons and then all stars kind of killed it it just kind of wasn't the same after that although a lot of the feedback we got from our all stars podcast has kind of maybe rethink that a little bit in that people have pointed out that you know, Survivor was still pretty popular after All-Stars. It didn't really kill anything other than <clears throat> the show didn't really focus on the, the history of the show anymore. They kind of started anew in Season 9. As people have pointed out, you know, it, it did great, and it was just on a never-ending high. It was always succeeding, and then All-Stars <clears throat> kind of knocked it for a loop, but you needed a season like that. And and I kind of agree with that the more I think about it. that I'm, I don't really think that Survivor or All-Stars killed Survivor anymore. What I think really started killing Survivor was this transition between 10 and 11. And we're about to get to one of the reasons I wanted to do this show, because Survivor really hadn't failed at anything yet. 
I mean, season five was not well received. Season three wasn't well received for that part, but the, the viewers were still there. And even though I hate All Stars, I know full well that not everyone hates All Stars. My argument is that everybody should hate All Stars, but I know I know full well it's not universally disliked. In fact, I I think when it ended, I don't think the producers would have seen All Stars as a, as a failure at all. I think, hey, that was a great season. We got good ratings. We got Boston, Rob, and Amber. So I think they saw All Stars as a big success, and I think a lot of fans do. That's a whole different argument if it should be, but I think it was. So <clears throat> Survivor really hadn't had a failure yet. Vanuatu was not particularly well received, but it still was. I mean, it it got it kept the people there. People liked the characters. Palau was incredibly popular at the time because of Tom, because of Ian. It was just and Stephanie, of course. But we're going to have Survivor's first real failure here, starting between seasons ten and eleven. And this is we're going to bring back Stephanie, who is maybe the most popular player of all time, and she will be so hated that she will be the goat who gets killed in a jury vote. And that must have absolutely just knocked the producers for a loop because they absolutely could not have predicted that would have happened to their new darling of the franchise. So I think between 10 and 11, something bad, it's like the first really bad thing happens from a production point of view that it was hard to recover from, where they, abs- they just ab- throw away their great new character and Stephanie's completely wasted. Yeah, for better or for worst, 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 not worst, but worse, for better or for worse, you know, All-Stars is... You know, we, we hype on it so much, and I really don't want to talk a ton about All-Stars, but that's a standalone thing. It's like, a, it's like I argued when we did the All-Stars pod, uh, uh, podcasts. That was a season where they had all returnees come back and play this game. And yeah, it's fundamentally different and all that stuff, but it's self-contained, and it's its own sort of phenomenon. But these first 10 seasons, I guess minus All-Stars, so the nine of the te- first 10 seasons, it's still a pure game. Yes, we're starting to, you know, it, we've gone from 16 contestants to 18 to 20 in Palau, and we got rid of two right away, and we're getting more twists, double tribal councils, you know, and we're going to start getting into Exile Island, which, and then in Guata- Guatemala, we're going to start getting into the Hidden Immunity Idol. Like, things are going to start getting introduced into the game, but these first 10 seasons, there's not a ton of that. It's still sort of a pure, people show up on the island, they vote each other out till the merge, and then they just pagong people. And, you know, we've, we've introduced tribal switches and things like that, but the game is still, and, and pure isn't even the right word. I, the Survivor isn't pure, it's a, it's a game show, for crying out loud. But, you know, it's, it's still relatively uncomplicated. As far, as far as the game goes. But once Guatemala is going to come in, Guatemala is going to introduce a lot of things. And people don't necessarily reject the change outright. Like, these are the things I don't like about Survivor. But it's going to enter this new era where we're going to introduce... It introduces the hidden immunity idol. It introduces the concept that you bring back a couple of people within a cast of newbies. It's going to introduce a lot more things to the game. And then Panama and Cook Islands and all these sorts of things. There's going to be all these different wrinkles and twists that they're going to add to the season. And, and it's going to be interesting to watch all that play out. I'll also make the argument that the great thing about the first 10 seasons is that despite it being 10 whole seasons of a show, every winner's story is completely different. I'm sure we'll talk about the winners across the board later in this podcast, but the fact that like not a single story is copied, there's no quote-unquote like one way to win Survivor. You know, you, you have the, your Brian Heidix and your Sandras as like the the polar opposites in my opinion of like how to play this game and i think like 
it's really interesting to even look at through 10 seasons, there wasn't like a foolproof plan to win. Whereas when you get to Guatemala and we might, we'll probably talk about this on our Guatemala podcast. There's a lot of comparisons you can make between Danny and Vesepia in terms of gameplay and in terms of um, manipulation tactics. And I think that's when the fan base also got, start to see a little bit of, you know, characters repeating, casting types repeating, strategies repeating. And that's when, uh, when people start to really get the hang of quote unquote, how to play survivor. Yeah, and again, I just can't overstate how popular Stephanie was after Palau and mm-hmm. how, how quickly that goes away in Guatemala. Doesn't she it's still just, hold the record? Because, you know, I know CBS does those, like, popularity polls, or they did on, on their Survivor website. Uh-huh. And I think Stephanie's popularity at some point was, like, 94%. Yeah, I don't know, what, about, in, what, what about Jesse Camacho? <laughs> I was just going to say she's up in the Jesse Camacho territory. Oh, Jesse Camacho. But, I mean, Stephanie, for someone being as more high-profile than Jesse Camacho, you know, Stephanie, after Palau, I mean, we tried to hit it, I think, on the Palau podcast, but it, it can't be said enough. Stephanie was super popular. Uh, and, you know, one with lasting power. I mean, R- Rupert still today is considered a popular survivor hero, even though we've seen Rupert a million times. And, and I think that the luster has gone off his star. But Rupert doesn't necessarily have, like, a crash and burn that Stephanie is going to go through. Like, Rupert was popular in Pearl Islands, and then All-Stars happens. And it's like, Rupert isn't, it's not like he's, you know, it's not like he goes through some sort of heel turn almost, where, like, the audience completely turns on him. I mean, they voted him a million dollars even after Survivor All-Stars, but they wouldn't have done that for Stephanie after Guatemala, I think. And Stephanie's a different type of hero. Like, you could make the argument Rupert was super popular and so was Stephanie, but Rupert you kind of felt bad for. He was the fat kid that got picked on. Like, he didn't succeed. He got voted out. It, like, you just kind of felt bad for the guy. You rooted for him. Stephanie, it was a whole different thing. She's like this inspiration to young girls. She never gives up. She can hang with the guys. Like, that's how they were hyping her as this character. Like, she is this huge inspiration to all these young female viewers. So it's a different kind of hero than Rupert was. And for her to crash and burn so fast in Guatemala... I mean, that's just, if you're a producer, that's the kind of thing you have nightmares about. And again, it's, it's the, what I consider the first real failure in Survivor. I think Guatemala is the first season that really fails from what they're trying to do. And I'm not sure they could have predicted that. I mean, in retrospect, maybe you don't want to bring back someone that popular because her popularity can only go down. But I don't think they could have foreseen how bad it could have gotten that she becomes the most hated player in the cast very quickly. Do you think, and this is conspiracy theory, and I know that we've talked about, let's talk about the first 10 seasons and we're talking about Guatemala, which is the 11th, uh-huh. but I don't care. Um, do you think, uh, because people have brought this, brought this up, we're in the era where producers bring people back to play seasons, whereas it's a, an all-star season, where it's a half all-star season, where it's a we're bringing two people back and whatnot. Guatemala remains the only season where nobody from Guatemala has returned to play again. That's accepting, of course, Stephanie and Bobby John, who were on that season, but they didn't originate from that season. They originated from Palau. But none of the other people from Survivor Guatemala have ever played the game again. And I think, if correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's the only season that that's true? Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, uh, not counting some of the more recent seasons where there hasn't been necessarily a chance for some of those people to come back. But I think Guatemala is the only season. And do you think that is? Because Guatemala did have some characters uh, that you would think would probably come back over some people that they have brought back. Do you think it's because the producers have such a negative taste toward what Guatemala did? Yeah. I, in fact, I fully believe it's one of their least favorite seasons, if not their least favorite. I know Probes has never really talked much about it. He'll just say, eh, it's boring. I can guarantee you the producers didn't like the way it played out. So 
yeah, I have to think it just left a negative taste in their mouth, and they just don't like bringing it up. I think if, I think it was a real slap in the face to what they were trying to do with the franchise at the time. I would say I think the more the bigger problem isn't that it wasn't received as negative in the producers, but it was received as more unremarkable. Like you yeah. just said, Mario, that like you know, Probst in his season rankings and every year is like you know, Guatemala. What happened? I don't remember. And when you're looking to cast returning players, granted there are certain cases where it's like, oh, we'll bring back Monica Culpepper because we like her husband, and those are the kind of the WTF outlier cases of bringing back players. But like because Guatemala was such an unremarkable season, I feel unfairly uh personally that it, that it's being discerned for that reason but i think that because it's you know no it's remembered as kind of meh there's not necessarily like people you remember from the seasons right off the top of your head casting just kind of skips over it every year yeah and they really it's it's kind of interesting we'll talk a lot more about this in guatemala i'm sure but they really got hamstrung with the editing it was it was kind of the first time in survivor history that they were forced to portray a character a certain way like you have to portray stephanie as the hero going in but they couldn't do that because it doesn't fit the narrative so it's a very unsatisfying narrative and i have to think they just kind of resented that that this there was some constraints put on them by the storyline that they didn't have in other seasons there's no other season up to this point where you have someone who is a hero and you have to portray them as a villain it's just it really skew it really screws with what they what they could do with the season so it's yeah i just think they probably resent guatemala and I don't think it's a bad season. I know I don't hate it at all, but I can mm-hmm. totally see why the producers wouldn't like it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of good things going on for it, and I and I'm excited to highlight those because not that I necessarily feel like oh Guatemala gets the worst rap, but I think that as you as you said, Mike, and as you said, Mario, people tend to gloss over it, and I think that it's a season worth noting for the good that comes from it and also the bad because I think the point of this, dear listeners is sum up the first 10 seasons the the first 10 seasons are an entity of themselves the game was rather uncomplicated we're now entering with i think with guatemala even more so than vanuatu and palau because i know vanuatu introduced 18 survivors as opposed to 16 and i know that uh palau kind of had 20 and then they had you know uh, sort of some twists on their own as it were, but I think that those are relatively minor in a, in the in the case of Survivor. But Guatemala is really going to start this era where it's going to be Survivor's experimentation era, where they're going to you know try things out and really kind of go with it. And so I think we we're talking about Guatemala a lot, but I think we're doing so because it's like sum up the first ten seasons. The first ten, there's I think a natural break in the franchise, and. Uh, it's it's it's. I think the first ten seasons probably is an era is my favorite era. Uh, that's probably why I'm on Survivor Historians, and uh, I think that there's a lot of special things that come out of it. But it also has the advantage of being first, just laying down the groundwork, being an extremely popular show, producing a lot of the archetypes and sort of these legendary characters that people are going to emulate down the line. So it's basically these next up- upcoming era is basically like the college years. Yeah. <laughs> You know, they've, they've, they're, they're experimenting, they're trying out new things, they're learning new things, uh, and just like the Saved by the Bell version, it is not as well received. It really isn't. And it and has course, ex-football players, just like Saved by the Bell college years. <laughs> now, of course, the question begs, like, would they have experimented as much if Guatemala wouldn't have flopped that bad? That's an interesting question I think we can get into later, but I'm curious to know if, if they would have started experimenting so much if Guatemala had been a huge hit like Palau. I think so, just because 
with Guatemala, fundamentally, they brought they brought Stephanie and Bobby John back. And granted, they're not going to bring just two people back in a season until when Redemption Island season twenty two. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's a long break in between that format, but they at least broached the idea that they can pit newbies with returnees, which is going to rear its head in a few seasons with Survivor Micronesia. Uh, they tried out the hidden immunity idol in this season, and uh, the Guatemala hidden immunity idol, as opposed to a hidden immunity idol in more modern seasons, is completely sort of different. But they tried it out, just as Palau sort of tried out Exile Island just that one time with Janu. And and they're gonna and they're gonna go, but like Guatemala, I think is where they really start to try some shit out, and it's gonna sort of snowball from there. And and I think Mario, the answer to your question is is if if Guatemala really succeeded, I think maybe we would have seen that two returnee format quicker than we did. Uh, I totally agree. And and you know with the hidden immunity idol, I think that's an idea that they had brewing for a while. And they sort of tried it out in Guatemala, but like everything, they're going to try to perfect it. So I think that they were eventually going to introduce those things anyway. And as much as I don't really love the Hidden Immunity Idol, I understand the natural progression of it in a game like Survivor. So I think that that's an inevitability, really, more than anything else. I would pose the question, do we think that the fact that Palau was such a success... Did that lead to all the the multitude of twists that happened in in the seasons that followed? I mean, considering Palau had, you know... Starting with 20, abandoning two at the start, and then the, they bring, brought, brought back Double Tribal Council, and then they had the immunity necklaces right from the start, and giving away a run at Double, double Tribal Council, and Exile Island, and the new tiebreaker. So part of me wonders, like, because Palau was such a success, did the producers then think, okay, let's start rolling in all these other twist ideas and see what happens? Yeah, you could, I mean, there's no way not any of us will ever know unless we're like on their production staff. But then again, you have to think that they were doing that double tribal council in Vanuatu already before Palau. So maybe they're just going to start throwing these twists in, you know, to hell with what people think, and they're just going to see how it goes. All right. With that being said, before we get to the questions, I just want to do a quick, a little quick run through. Well, actually. Uh, fulfill Mike's make-a-wish dream here that we'll actually get to talk about the first couple seasons. So let's just do kind of a quick summary of what each season means to the history of Survivor all the way up to Palau. Sound good? Great. I don't have a choice. Exactly. That's the correct answer, Jay. Yay, me! Do I get a cookie? No? Darn it. Maybe next time. He's doing some shtick. All right. So yeah, so Borneo, season one. Um, the original Survivor was a very much a novel concept on TV at the time. Most people, I mean, it had been done in Europe before, but no one, most people in America had never seen anything like this, where you just throw people onto an island and see who survives. That's, that's basically the name of the game, literally, Survivor, who's going to make it to the end. So it was interesting in that the game was born that first season. And one thing I always have to bring up is that people always say, to this day, you still hear where, well, Richard was the only one who played the game. Everyone else was an idiot or... You know, the Pagans were stupid, and they just didn't, wouldn't do alliances. But I've always argued this. I will argue this to the death, that there were 16 incredibly smart people out there all trying to win a game that they didn't know the rules of yet. And, the, and it was kind of a two-part one. You wanted to win the game, but you also didn't want to look like an asshole on national TV, which was the second part of the game that a lot of people forget. That there was very, a, a very much a consequence to being a dick on TV and winning and having to deal with it afterwards when all the interviews and stuff, like, why were you such an asshole? And, like, it, there was a big stigma. So I will always defend all 16 players in that season. I think they were fantastic. I think they were all smart. 
Richard's strategy won. It doesn't mean it had to win. That wasn't the only way to win Survivor. Jervis' strategy of just being the nice guy who played cards and got along with everyone very easily could have won. So it's one of those things in hindsight where people say, well, Richard was the only one who was playing. And I think the argument against that is, no, there was 16 ways to play, and his just happened to win that first time, so that became Survivor. Well, yes and no. I mean, we, we talked about this before. There, I mean, there are many ways to win Survivor, but in order to win Survivor, you have to be cognizant of the game. And I think that you bring, you bring the, the correct point, Mario, which is they were trying to play this game and not look like uh, a jerk on national television. And Survivor, is, as you said in this Palau uh, podcast, I, and I distinctly remember you saying this, you said, you know, it, this is a cruel game. And, you know, it, I don't think that, that Richard winning turned the game cruel. It, it is by its nature sort of a cruel game show. But they didn't know that yet. And, you know, it, if, it, it would have taken a few, maybe a few seasons if Jervis had won or Gretchen had won. You know, say that, you know, no one really caught on and, you know, the, the Pagong style of we're just going to play it by ear won out for some reason. And, you know, someone nice won. Like, eventually people would have figured out, you know, how to sort of go about this cruel game. But the fact that it happens that they sort of... Um, I don't even like the phrase figured it out, but figured it out in the first season. And, you know, a Tagi Alliance member won that season, I think just accelerated that process. I would also say in terms of like the historical context of this season, that Sue's snakes and rats speech was probably one of the most important moments in survivor history in general, just because the main conceit, it brings up the main conceit uh, and the main like moral quandary of survivor in general, which is, how are you able to vote these people out, your competitors, who you become friends with and build a society with together? And I think Sue's speech kind of sums up what can go wrong with that and the, the traps you can fall into. And I think it definitely set the stage for a lot more conflicts to come over the, the myriad of seasons in terms of, well, how, how do you play a game where you, you have to you know, vote out your buddy Ian or... Uh, you have to betray the promise that you made to a friend when you made a pregame alliance. Like it, it brings in all these ideas about morality in this game, where you have to. It's basically like a, a glorified game of chess almost, and you have to. But it, you're playing it with human people, so you have to be more moral and when you make your moves. Yeah, the the one thing that that tends to get brought up over the years that Richard was a villain, Richard was a scoundrel, and you'll hear that kind of in later seasons where Russell says, Russell in particular will say, well, you know, in the early days of the show, they they respected strategy, and now it's just a big popularity contest. And I would, I would say that I don't think anything has ever changed in Survivor. I think it's always been a popularity contest, and I think Richard was very well liked, and he won because he was well liked. I mean, yeah, he made moves, yeah, he had strategy, but people liked him and respected him because. He went out of his way to treat people with respect. He would make relationships with people. They'd have chats around the fire. Like, you might not have liked Richard, but you understood where he was coming from. And he himself didn't think alliances were immoral. And he was trying very hard to explain to the audience and to other players along the way that alliances are not cheating. This is just I'm following the established structure of this game. And so that's the one thing I want to bring up that people always say that the game changed along the way. And I'm like, no, it didn't. Russell was just an asshole and Richard wasn't. That's kind of the big difference. I think that. You know, you you've posed it. You know, you you had in the, even in the psychology of Survivor. I think you wrote this, but uh, something along the lines of it, it's it, not just it's a popularity contest, but the people are going to vote at the end of the day for the person that you know they're going to feel good about winning the season. And most of the time, that's the person that they like better. 
um, or, or hate the least. Over the years, what makes somebody like somebody has changed slightly. You know, I think that for a lot of the years, it was just the person that they liked better, that they bonded with better, that they respected a little bit more. Um, and, I, and I think that respect has a, has a good thing with it. I think that, you know, as the game has evolved, I think people think about gameplay and game, game machinations a little bit more than they did in the past. And so I think people tend to respect that. So if they see someone that they think is playing a good game, they will tend to like that person more and then vote for that person because they like them. Um, but fundamentally, Mario, I, I agree 100% with you. The, the way people vote at the end of the game really hasn't changed much. Yeah, and you could just as easily say, this is a, a, a sentence that I, I think should be said more, that you know the story of, of Survivor Borneo really is Kelly, and that Kelly is in the Alliance. Kelly is right there with the Toggy 4, but she won't admit it. She won't tell anyone. She's like, I don't like the Alliance. I think it's immoral. I think it's cheating. I don't want to be in it. But she's still in it. She's voting with them. And that's really the story of why Kelly loses. Like, she's not honest with what she's doing. She's kind of like Sean Kenneth in a way that she's trying to play both sides of the fence. I want to go with the votes, but I don't want the stigma of being in the alliance. And if you look at that Borneo from that perspective, that Kelly really loses at the end. It's not so much that Richard wins, it's that Kelly just loses because she's a weasel. She just is not honest. And they're like, well, at least Richard is honest. You know, he, he will never lie. He, he's doing exactly what he says he's going to do. And Kelly will never give you a straight answer. Well, I'm in the alliance. No, I'm not. No, I want to hang out with the Pagongs. So if you look at it from that perspective, it's very easy to see why Richard wins. He's he's not lying to anybody. He's doing exactly what he says, and he's like not he's not really fucking with people. And so that's really the one thing I don't think it's brought up enough about Borneo that Richard never really screwed anybody. And I think uh, it also the looking back the first season compared to like a lot of modern seasons, it, it has a much more like convention uh, like unconventional final four makeup in terms of like there are there are many more older people you have rudy on there and i think i mean rudy's legacy we have we've you guys have talked about a lot and we talked about a little bit in all stars but the fact that this like 70 plus year old marine was able to make it for 37 for 38 days on an island like with limited supplies is fantastic and i think it paved the way for a lot of older contestants to come on and you know they they succeeded in the game to to various degrees but i think his casting type was really really interesting because i feel like had you know rudy gone the bb route and not really succeeded and voted out like first or second then we probably wouldn't have had a season like nicaragua where they brought back half older people and half younger people it'd be a much more younger oriented game is rudy in that survivor hall of fame that's out there oh god no of course Uh, not that's that is that is a crime in and of itself um, but I will have to say this: trying to trying to move on and you know get us get us moving on here. Uh, if Survivor Borneo is 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 the genesis, it's the beginning, it's the way to pay it out. Survivor, the Australian outback, I believe, cements the show as the number one television show for a while. Like that was an event that season, yeah. and they proved that they could do it again. That was the thing. A lot of people thought Survivor was just a fluke. It's a one time thing. It will never work the second time. The second time, it's even bigger. So yeah, I mean that absolutely cemented this as a franchise. Yeah, and except this time it's much more about people walking into the game cognizant of a lot of different things. A, you know, at that point the first season castaways had become quasi celebrities and I think a lot of people made decisions based on that type of uh post show uh f- fame and infamy. And I think the other thing they did is you know they looked at Richard strategies. They looked at the alliances, and so you see, quote a lot more quote unquote strategic play. Strategic from the point of view of playing more of a 
Richard Hatch type alliance game. And so this is really when we get to see people start to play quote unquote strategy in Survivor going along that model that Richard and his alliance helped set up. And because of that, because that more people sort of came to the game ready to combat the game and play it, I think that, you know, while Richard is sort of a nebulous form in and of himself, you know, Richard is 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 in a way an archetype for something, but in a lot of ways he isn't. And, you know, Rudy is an archetype for some things, and in a lot of ways he's lays he isn't. You know, some of those lesser characters that they didn't focus on as much in Borneo, which they did, but they didn't focus on as much, like like um Jervis and, and, and Colleen and some of those people, they sort of become sort of ancestral archetypes for a lot of things and, and the outback is going to really cement a lot of player archetypes that people are then going to really model down the line talking about like colby tina jerry some of these really huge names that are going to pay dividends all the way down the seasons of survivor in the future yeah one of the things i always say is i always say borneo is the most complex season because there's so many different variables that pl- players are trying to work around but I think Australia is the most interesting season. Mm. I, I wouldn't say it's the best TV. It's not my favorite season. But it's just interesting because it's the only season that is 100% dependent on the season before it. And that's the way I say that all the time. And that's, you know, Richard won Borneo, but Richard was not the winner of the audience. The audience never really accepted Richard. He was never a favorite. People thought he was kind of a joke in all the interviews and stuff he did after the show. Jervis, Colleen, Gretchen, I mean, these were the stars at Rudy of Borneo. So season two, you have a whole bunch of people all knowing how to play Survivor. You see the alliance, you want to get in it, that's how to win. But they're trying so hard not to be Richard. Although, really, they're trying not to be Sue. The whole Sue, uh, rats and snakes speech at the end that was so horrible. They're trying so hard not to be that. So Australia is just this really interesting reaction of 16 people trying to be the Toggies, but trying so hard not to come off like the Toggies on TV. And that's why you have all this undercurrent where they're saying, like, well, you know, the good people have to win this time, or Jerry doesn't deserve it, I want good people at the end. Tina, a lot of them were just trying so hard to steer the perception they wanted to be a popular season because the ending of Borneo was not popular. So I just think Australia has this really interesting variable in it that no other season possibly could have had. That which is, 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 is a reaction to the first season. Which is funny because, you know, in Tina's final Tribal Council speech, uh, when she's sitting in the Colby, she, it's very Toggy-like if you do all those sorts of things. I mean, she's basically like, look, if you have hard feelings, uh, too bad. You know, we had to play this way and, uh, you know, suck it up, cupcake, sort of was her <laughs> deal. And it's like, yeah. that's very, it's very Toggy-like. It's like, look, this is, this is the way it is. And this is the game we played. So, so judge me on that. Yeah. But it's just one of those things I don't think it's possible to discuss Australia without discussing Borneo because it's just – it's a 180. It's the exact reaction to why Borneo was not accepted by the audience. And it's just one of the reasons I think Tina is not only maybe my favorite player of all time but probably my favorite winner because it's so interesting to see her – you know, the good people have to win. I'm a good person. I want Roger and Elizabeth. But if you watch Tina, all she cares about is that – people think Tina is one of the good people that deserve there to be to deserve to be at the end. Like as long as you think Tina is a good person, then she loves that strategy. She loves the good people needed to be at the end because if Tina really believed that the good people should be there at the end, she wouldn't have voted out her best friend, mad dog in episode three. <laughs> so just, I just find Tina fascinating with how she plays the strategy. She basically uses season one as her weapon. That's her number one weapon all season. And that's why she wins. And it's fascinating. And let's talk about Tina's win for a second, because I feel like that sets up a bunch of historical things as well. First and foremost, she is 
obviously the first woman to win it. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I remember, I think, after the first season, there was a bit of a question about, can a woman win Survivor? Granted, mm-hmm. only one season had aired, but I think people were genuinely thinking about, like, well, you know, based on Richard's win, and, you know, he had popular people like Rudy and Jervis as well, like, is, is, is a woman able to win Survivor? And not only was she obviously able to win as a woman on Survivor, but she was able to win with a, con- a completely different strategy. As I talked about in the beginning of this podcast, there's 10 different stories for 10 different winners in these first few in these first batch of seasons and tina's played you know she was the dog that didn't bark she played a completely different game than richard and she showed people at home you don't need to play the 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 quote-unquote machiavellian uh or machiavelli uh if you were online at the time uh you wouldn't you don't have to necessarily play that game to win you could play a much more subtle much more behind the scenes game and still be able to win a million dollars and, and what's hilarious is that Tina is way more ruthless than Richard ever was. She's cutting friends left and right. She's like just totally blindsiding people. Like Tina is much more of a villain than Richard if you just look at gameplay. Richard is very loyal to his alliance the entire way. Tina is cutting people off left and right. And yet to this day, there's still this misconception that Tina only won because she was nice. So it's again, I think she's so fascinating to read about her and, and kind of study why she won. It's just completely different than what most people think it is. People don't give it enough credit because, again, you look at these first 10 or so seasons of Survivor, um, you know, we have a pretty even split as far as uh, winners, men and, men and women, right? Uh, you know, the first seven seasons actually you know the first seven seasons it alternates between male male female male female and then you know sandra is going to win in pearl islands and then amber is going to win in uh all stars and then chris and tom are going to win van Van watching plot but it's very even but what what we didn't know at the time maybe mario you did because you were thinking ahead but you know i'm not going to give you all that credit (laughs) but what we've learned and i think that the takeaway of this is that in its original game of Survivor, without a lot of the twists and gimmicks and stuff like that, not you know, it, you're right, Mike. There was a question: can a woman win? Can a woman win Survivor? But looking back on that era, the answer is not only a, yes, of course, a woman can win Survivor, but a woman actually probably should win Survivor every season. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's once you get past the merge, those women that aren't athletic threats just are very dangerous the more you study survivor the more you'll see that pattern emerging like they should win a lot and they do and you know and and even even through a lot of the twists it still is very even male female male female and leads female it's only with the latest rash of seasons with you know the way the gameplay has has churned out with the way people view modern seasons with a lot of the editing that's gone on and with a lot of the twists it's skewed a little bit more male but we've had a lot of women, uh, women winners in Survivor, as it should be. Yeah, and we can't wrap up Australia without talking about the Colby decision at the end, which is, that's really kind of the, the mem- most memorable moment of Australia, Colby making this really weird choice to take Tina to the end over the easy win on Keith, and that's something everyone wants to talk about. And I don't remember what we talked about in Historians. I'm sure we went over this. We, we, we went over it a lot. So let's, <laughs> yeah. just, let's just go to Mike, because you and I have uh, talked about it to death. Uh, so you want me to you ask me if like you know if the Colby decision was good or bad? Yeah, or, just basically uh, agree with what we, what we said two years ago. Well, I mean, we talked about we talked about <laughs> a little bit on the uh, with Ian on the at the end of Palau, like as as a quote unquote gameplay choice. Yes, it was a bad decision, but it resonated with Colby's heart and his mind and what he wanted to do at the time. Uh, he still is fine with the decision, so I still think it's it's successful on his part because he did what he wanted to do. He had the controlling vote, and he used it for something that he wanted. That he used it 
how we wanted to. So it wasn't a failure, you know, from from that perspective. I mean, obviously he didn't win the game, but I think it's still a sound decision in his heart. Yeah, and again, I have to. I mean, I'll I'll repeat this until my dying day that. Colby's decision only makes sense if you study Borneo and like he just didn't want to be the asshole at the end who voted out his outback mommy. Like the audience hated the Toggies and Colby's trying so hard not to be a Toggie. So it makes total sense, but only if you study Borneo leading into Australia. Yeah, and, and just speaking a little bit about Australia as well, I mean, Colby and Jerry are two I mean, there, there's a reason why they got they got brought back for heroes versus villains, despite the fact that they hadn't been on the air for, you know, twelve seasons at that point. I mean, they're Still to this day, two of the most infamous characters in Survivor history. Uh, this is the first, like, good-looking male, all-American hero, Captain America, that we had seen on the show. And this was the first, quote-unquote, Black Widow villainess that we had seen on the show. And uh, I, I don't know how many other types there will be for the rest of, the, for the rest of Survivor history, but, I mean, those are the, still the two most mm-hmm. infamous characters yep. in the game, and they both appeared on this season. Yes, that's 100% correct, and I guess with my, with my cry in the last season of why Rudy isn't in the Survivor Hall of Fame, it's an even larger shame that Jerry is not there, because <laughs> Jerry, to me, is like the beginning of just an entire subset of people trying to be Jerry in, in later seasons. Like, like sh- so much credit needs to be given to Jerry, and I feel like it, even today it isn't given to her, and that's a shame. Yeah, I mean, that sucks. Even if she was remembered for the wrong stuff... She was probably the biggest character of the first four seasons. I mean, <sighs> not in a way that she would have liked, but outside Survivor, people even knew Jerry. Yes. All right, so we're going to get into Africa here. So we had our first two seasons, the original, and then the reaction to it, Australia. And then the third one, which, of course, Shanghai, right at the start by 9-11, which completely knocked Survivor off, <laughs> off, uh, off the top of the TV charts, uh, as it probably should have. I mean, that was so there's no way Survivor could have recovered from all these people on TV saying, oh, reality TV is a joke. We have all this fake suffering on TV and all these people really suffering now in New York. It's a joke. So, Which is ironic yeah. because that season, I think, you know, darn near killed them all. Yeah. It yeah. Did. I mean, they really suffered that season. So, I mean, yeah, I, I, uh, I was going to say, I, I guess if, if we were going to talk about the legacy of Africa, we have to start with Ian. And I know this is uh, Ethan. Why Ian? I still have Ian on the brain. Uh, I, don't, I, I know you guys have talked about this before, but it can't be said enough that Ethan really was the first really popular winner. And that, that speaks volumes for the franchise, considering that, again, it was only two seasons, but I think the, 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 you know, the, the rumors started to being spread that, like, oh, you know, the most popular people don't win the game. Uh, you know, Colby didn't win. Rudy didn't win. The Pagongs didn't win. Oh, this, the, you know, someone we, someone we're okay with or that we don't like is going to win the game. And Ethan completely defied that. And again, he played a completely different strategy than Richard or Tina. He was, it was more about uh, being like the, the best number two and being the nice guy. And he was never really targeted the entire time because uh, for a myriad of reasons. But the fact that he was so just darn likable really speaks volumes. Uh, and, you know, the fandom has over the years kind of backed down on, on Ethan and he's to this day unfortunately been only really remember, rem- memorable as like the quote unquote guy with cancer uh, but uh, you, you have to speak highly of his win here and what it did for the franchise yeah the, I mean they really did need that you needed a popular winner and again I go back to the immortal words of T-Bird Cooper what can you say that's bad about Ethan? Nothing yeah so uh, Africa not a particular popular season I think it's gained more popularity over time. I've always loved it. But yeah, you needed that big winner that people were rooting for. And that was, that's, that's Africa's legacy to the franchise, that you finally got that winner. That was a big moment. 
And on the flip side, then we have Vesepia. <laughs> yeah, not, not, not quite the same. I, uh, Marquesas comes around. Marquesas is to the point that I really think Survivor Fatigue was kind of starting to set in where it's really not the biggest show on TV anymore. It was really kind of whittling down to just the hardcore fans. And I love Marquesas. I remember most people loved it at the time. It was a fantastic season. I mean, you had some great moments. You had uh, the Purple Rock in there. But before that, even, you had the fall of the Rotu 4, which was great. So, I mean, there were some really big moments. And again, I think the fall of the Rotu 4 to the, was uh, the first uh, power shift in Survivor history after the merge, which a lot of fans didn't think could ever happen. They didn't think a dominant alliance would ever fall apart after a merge. And that was the moment that kind of proved, yes, it can happen. So Marquesas has some really big moments and then just an ending that let everyone down. So that was kind of its legacy at the time. I can't disagree with it because I was kind of there at the time. I was a big Kathy fan, but that, that was Marquesas' legacy. It, if, if Kathy had won that season, I have no doubt that would have been the most popular of the first four seasons. Oh, I thought you were talking about the ending as in, in the sense that Gabriel got voted out. <laughs> no, uh, it's, it's too hard. It's still too soon. I can't talk about Gabriel. I would say that Marquesas is an extremely important season for people that would go on to play the game because I think it opened their eyes up to a lot of things. I mean, the Hunter vote was an extremely important vote at the time. We, we talked about the season broke a lot of conventions, and one of them was these alpha male leaders always make it to the merge, and sometimes they make it far in the game. And Hunter got voted out in episode three. And I think Boston Rob doing that kind of showed future players, like, you can still make moves in the pre-merge, and then it showed in the post-merge. You can still turn on the dominant alliance if you have the numbers. And, you know, it's it showed a lot of players' possibilities that they can make, uh, that there were still... Lots and lots of permutations that you can use with strategy in the game. And by the way, just because it's my mission in life not to let Boston Rob get credit for everything, listen, we do, as historians, we must point out that Sean and Vesepia were also involved in that decision, too. It wasn't oh, just yeah, Boston abs- Rob. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I, got, I, I can't let probes take over this show. <laughs> yeah, so that's Marquesas. Then we go into Thailand. The first quote-unquote unpopular season. I mean, Africa wasn't as popular as the first ones. I don't know if it was downright hated, but Thailand, I, I do remember a lot of fans just kind of giving up on Thailand. It was not popular at the time. It wasn't, but I think that it, you know, me being the defender of Thailand, it, there's a lot of good stuff in Thailand, but it's it's a lot of stuff on retrospect. And just as Mike was talking about Marquesas being, you know, you know the hunter vote and, and, and just... The, the the fact that uh, you know uh, Nalia and Pascal sort of you know turned on the Rotus and the fall of the Rotu four you know that set some really big wheels into motion for uh, later on in the in the voting structure of, of Survivor but Survivor Thailand shows a lot of people how to play and how not to play you know and, and not just oh Xi'an with the fake merge and stuff like that but you know I think that I think Thailand did a really good job of highlighting you know a lot the thing about thailand is is that there's not a whole ton of likable characters in there and a lot of the likable characters like jake like aaron like some of those like some of those soup guys that were sort of left at the end they were doomed and it kind of shows you that just because you want to go in there and be likable doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to go in there and have an advantage and it also shows in a lot of ways even if you know you're not that nice of a person, it shows that you know being likable within the game, being likable within the tribe, could be enough. And I think that Survivor Thailand shows you that you know Jed and Stephanie and some of those people that are just unlikable, unwilling to do things, they're going to get cut out. And you know even if you're sort of abrasive, if you're all about the tribe, if you 
pitch in around camp and everyone's pitching in and you have a good attitude about just certain things within the game, that's what you need to have. And I think Thailand shows people that. Now, I know a lot of people will disagree with me that I think Brian Heideck is the greatest survivor player ever. I think he was never in any danger of not winning that season since the first minute of that day, that game. And I just, I, I hate the irony here that Thailand's the one season that no one really liked, yet it features probably the best player. I've, I've never really liked that dichotomy, but there you go. Well, I think that in a lot of ways, and then sorry to cut you off, Mike, but I That's think okay. that in a lot of ways, some of those really dominant people, the people that can sort of control everyone else on the beach, they tend to not be the most exciting seasons because everyone's under control. Yeah, yeah. and I and I mean, there's, again, I'm going to talk again, again and again about how each of these player styles really added into like your survivor rule book of quote-unquote how to play the game. Uh, I, and Brian's was a, a very, very prominent example of that. I know we talked about Tom being, you know, one of the first examples of how th- this big alpha male can win. But Brian really set up this strategy for future players like Boston Robin or Redemption Island and Kim Spradlin in One World of like, you can actually maintain control the entire game and really remove your emotions from everything and and still be able to win. You know, and I think that that. We saw bits and pieces of that in everybody's games leading up to that, but this is really the first season where this man comes in and says, I'm Mr. Freeze, I'm going to play this game completely emotionless, and we see him absolutely run train on everybody in that game. Yep. And then we get to Amazon, which was a uh, popular season at the time. It was a nice little breath of fresh air after Thailand, which, again, it was left kind of a yucky taste in people's mouth. But Amazon came along. It was a very fun season, a very well-received season. Uh, Rob Sesternino, big character, uh, not universally beloved. I mean, there's a lot of people that hated him, but you got a rea- he got a reaction out of people. He was a big character. He was a very important character. Was never had never really been a Rob before because he wasn't athletic. He wasn't one of these natural survivor contestants. He was just a kid who watched this game on TV and, and loved messing with people. So, Rob is a very important character. But I would also put Amazon in the category of Marquesas that fantastic season people hated the ending and it ruined it for a lot of people so that's the thing i think they're both fantastic season they're both in my top five but yeah both they both got a very uh similar reaction from the audience great season great characters but fuck that ending yeah and i i would also say that uh i i mean the the whole tribe breakdown as well it was the first time the tribes have been divided by sex and i think they had the, the pick them in thailand but this is really the first time that we saw a different permutation mm-hmm. of tribes uh, and we got to see that play out. And I think that the since the Battle of Sexes worked so well, that was so tantamount to all, you know, they'll bring back the Battle of the Sexes only three seasons later, only a year and a half later in Vanuatu. And I think that speaks volumes as to how successful the producers thought the twist would be. And then we'll see, they'll bring it back again. Then they'll divide the tribes by race and by age and by uh, by gender again. So, like, I think that definitely paved the way for producers to be like, okay, we can start the game off with this twist and see where it goes from there. Survivor Amazon taught all of us that if you work hard and believe in yourself, you can go places. You can burn down a camp. <laughs> I knew instantly that was going to be a Butch reference. <laughs> <laughs> oh, callback references. No, uh, the Amazon, and, and I think when you talk about the importance of Rob Sesternino, because Rob Sesternino was the first, I mean, it, in a dumb way, he was the first Survivor star to be like 
in a way he he was playing survivor i mean he was out there with everyone else he was out there roughing it in the weather and doing camp work and all that other stuff and and playing the game but he was sort of our tv star in a lot of ways like jerry and colby and some of these early archetypes they were made into stars by the editing and just sort of the, the 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 way things go but rob was ready rob was ready to be a tv star when he went out there on the show and I mean, he played a killer game in the process, but I mean, he is, he's kind of our first archetype for you want to have it. You want, you want to be prominent on TV. You want to be a good TV character. Here's a way you can do it. And then we get to Pearl islands and, and Pearl islands is kind of a, a unique season among the first 10 in that it's almost universally beloved now. But at the time, I don't remember it being that big a deal. And I, I may be wrong about this, but all I remember about that era is that people were talking about All-Stars coming up. Well, like Pearl, Pearl Island was just the season you kind of had to get through to get to All-Stars. Yes and no. I mean, the hype for All-Stars was real. So Pearl Islands did sort of get stepped on. But I think that the, you know, the, it had, a, it had you know, the, the viewership was a little bit higher even than Amazon. And, you know, some of that is lead into All-Stars, but I think that Rupert Mania was a thing, and I think the fact that they were, it was a pirate-themed season, I think that those two things, Rupert and the pirate-themed season, was enough to make it relevant. Yeah. And it's just the irony that I, I just remember Pearl Islands kind of being glossed over, yet it's now my favorite season, so it's just, I just kind of am amused by that. But yeah, the Rupert, that was the biggest thing in Survivor history to that point. I mean, the biggest character. He was just a big deal all over that season, and to the point that, you know, it's it's kind of an unfulfilling ending. Like, no one is really rooting for Sandra as much as they were rooting against John. But just the Rupert, the Rupertness of that season carried it to the point, like, at the time that it was, it was considered a success. And now, in retrospect, everybody watches it and sees how amazing it was. But, yeah, it was just the Rupert show, and it was a great show. It's, like, people say he's overrated. He was absolutely not overrated in Pearl Islands. He was a fantastic character. And then All Stars. <laughs> so anyway, Vanuatu was next. <laughs> yeah, so All Stars, some bad stuff happened. So then we get to Vanuatu, the first season post All Stars. Not a season that the audience really responded to. It just was kind of an, an angry, ugly season, and it really—I don't know—it was kind of the dark, the the black sheep of the Survivor family for many years. That no, almost no one would say they liked Vanuatu, which is. Funny because over the years now, people I hear a lot of people say that's their favorite. This is one that's almost universally loved now. But yeah, it was just kind of forgotten. It was one of those eh, move on. I mean, because it really wasn't much more than that. Well, again, you know, you, you've you've sort of talked about how viewers, you know, like Marquesas in the Amazon. It's one of those like oh, good season, good characters, but I don't like the ending. Mm-hmm. And with Vanuatu, like I think that people responded okay to Chris's win, but by that token, in Marquesas everyone was going into the finale rooting for Kathy, right? Like there was someone to root for, right? Mm-hmm. And going into the Amazon, people, you know, they liked, they liked Rob, you know, not that, not that like Rob was like, you know, just this huge fan favorite, but there was someone at least that people can sort of root for in mm-hmm. a way. When you look at Vanuatu, like Chris wasn't particularly well-liked. People didn't like Twyla. People didn't really like Eliza because, you know, they had been ragging on her the whole game. And people didn't especially love Scout. And so you get to that final four, and it's just kind of like, who do you root for? <laughs> yeah. And so that one's got a different one, where I don't think that the winner, Chris, was as reviled as perhaps Jenna was and as perhaps, you know, sort of Sandra was and, and, and sort of Giuseppe at the time. 
but by that same token, it's not like people were really rooting for him. And so like when, you know, whereas there was a glimmer of hope in those other seasons at the end, like something good can happen. And then it didn't. And you're like, ah, screw it. The thing I didn't like didn't happen. It's like you went into the Vanuatu finale going, I, I don't, I don't know, man. I don't, I, whatever. (laughs) And I think Chris's story is also, we, we see glimpses of it in Vesepia, but this is the first outright, like story redemption storyline of like he is proverbially fucked at the final seven you know all his allies just got voted out and he's able to trailblaze a way to the win and that is an extremely great storyline and i mean again going back to this whole idea of of you know sexes and women's and uh, sexes and gender and winners and survivor after all stars we had jenna sandra and then amber win in a row i think people were starting to say like oh so now can a man win Survivor again? It seems like women are, are really, you know, now the numbers are out balanced. It seems like women, there's a streak of women winners and they seem to be taking control of these games. Vanuatu, you have an alliance of women that has a stronghold grip of the game for the vast majority of it. And then, so I think this one also brought the idea up in people's heads of like, oh, okay, wait, there's not, you know, it's, it's, it's just a streak of women winning. Men can still win the game, albeit in extremely crazy circumstances. Yeah, that's a really good point that you pointed out, that string of women winners, especially kind of under-the-radar women winners. And, it, I mean, people forget that, for all intents and purposes, a woman was going to win Vanuatu. A woman should have won Vanuatu. It should have been someone like Julie. I mean, 95% of the time, Julie wins that season. It's just kind of an odd circumstance of, of things happening that uh, Chris came back to win. But, yeah, that was absolutely a women-run season. And, again, like Rupert dominated... Pearl Islands, that was the Amy season. That's the one thing I hope made sure that people we got through in historians, that Amy was a big character. So, yeah, Vanuatu, it's just an odd story. It doesn't fit the pattern of the other seasons, but it was not particularly well-received, and people were more than happy to move on to Palau, I think. And then we come to our most recent season, Palau, the last of the original ten, the one where Tom and the Karoras just dominate. Um... We just went over it. Uh, we talked about all the important stuff. Stephanie, a big character. Tom, very popular winner. Maybe the most respected winner in Survivor history up to that point. And that's where we uh, have settled after 10 seasons. Hooray. Hooray. <laughs> so do you have anything else to add before we get into listener questions? Let's let's jump in. We, we can jump in. I'm, I'm On the one hand, it's very sad because... He, Going forward, uh, look, I still watch Survivor even to this day, and I try to find good moments. And there are seasons after Palau that I enjoy, and that I enjoy very, very much. So it's not like this is all a downhill slog from now, but I will just take a time to pause and reflect on the 10 seasons that went. It's my favorite era of Survivor. Some of these seasons are just top-notch, and I could watch them again and again and again and again without any problems. And, uh, you know, you'll be missed, and we will go in and forge ahead into Survivor's college years, remembering fondly. Yeah, absolutely some of the best TV I've ever seen. Even seasons that weren't my favorite at the time, like Palau, when I rewatched it this last time, I was just amazed at how good the really good stuff is. Like that, again, it's not, a se- it's not one of my favorites, and it's just amazing. The end of Palau is so great. So, so anyway, we asked our listeners to send in questions about the first 10 seasons, um, and luckily, we have a very bright listener base that they sent in some really good questions and some really deep questions. Like, these aren't some of your typical ones you'll hear on a Survivor podcast. They're, they're going to make us think a little bit. So I'm going to start off with some of the easy ones, and then we're going to work our way down to the more complex ones that, that, uh, that'll that take some thought. But I thank you for everyone for writing in and sending in questions. We'll try to get through as many as we can. 
You guys all set? Mm-hmm. Let's go. All right. This is from uh, George Alvarado. What was your favorite season out of the first ten? Um, for me, that's easy. Pearl Islands. I love Pearl Islands. Marquesas is my number two, but Pearl Islands is that's my opinion of of what a perfect Survivor season looks like. Yeah, Pearl Islands is probably still to this day my favorite Survivor season ever. I think it's just a fun balance of characters, strategy, theme, moments. Like I feel like every episode had at least one moment to quote-unquote watch for. And I think uh, it's, it's, I agree with you, Mario. It's still a perfect season in my eye. I would, I would put Amazon as number two. The ending is nothing to write home about, but I, I love, I'm a character man, and I love the wealth of characters in there. Um, I've said it before. I'll say it again. Uh, Survivor Pearl Islands is unquestionably my favorite season of Survivor. And it's also one of the more unfair seasons of Survivor. And I'm cool with that. Um, I love Pearl Island so much. Uh, and, 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 and I'm hopping on the bandwagon there. Second favorite of those era. Controversially, I think the answer is Vanuatu for me. I love Survivor Vanuatu. I don't know why. I just love it. Um, maybe it's a tie for second with Vanuatu and the Australian Outback. I just think both of those seasons are, I could watch them over and over again and never be bored. And just for the record, I have to point out that George's question actually said, excluding Borneo, what is your favorite season? He, he assumed all, all three of us would say Borneo. No. None of us no. would say Borneo. So. Nope. <laughs> I really wouldn't know. Yeah, we're purists, but we're not that purist. Pearl Islands is better than Borneo. All right. Uh, question two from Jason Selling. What was the biggest change in opinion on a character or a season that you had during this process of researching for historians? That's a great question. Yeah, that's a really good question. Ooh. I have to think about this one. Someone want to go first? Uh, there were. I'll, I'll say one thing, uh, and I'll you know I'll, I'll I'll limit it to the three seasons that I've been on so far with historians. I was very very surprised how much I enjoyed the first four episodes of All Stars. Uh, I think <laughs> just because the end of All Stars left such a bad taste in our mouths, and it's it's looked upon as a generally disliked season. Uh, it was a lot of fun looking back on those first four episodes because they were still kind of having fun, and even a little bit into the fifth episode as well. Like it was a, re- it's just a really great group of people, and there's so many character moments. I don't I don't think it's uh, any sort of coincidence that mostly most of the moments that you put into the funny one fifteen from All Stars Mario are from these first four episodes. It it, it is it's what Survivor all what everyone wanted from Survivor All Stars, which is like fan fiction, all these characters from all these seasons interacting. So I completely forgot the ending completely marred the opinion of the season for me. So to watch those four episodes again and really enjoy them was a huge surprise for me. I'll go second so Mario will go last. Um I think that you know, there's a lot of legitimate things. I think it's a great question because on going back and rewatching, I mean, I've rewatched these seasons previously. It's not like I only watched them when they first came out and then I had never seen them ever. And then I watched them just again recently. I've seen, you know, I, I bought the DVDs when they came out, you know, especially of those first DVDs that came out, you know, the Borneo and the All Stars and, and then the, the Pearl Islands and all that sort of stuff. I don't know. I think that perhaps the thing that I sort of changed and it wasn't really a mind change, but something that I became very cognizant of going through the, this process is I feel, and I've said it already on this podcast, I feel that not enough credit and attention comes to Jerry and Jerry's contribution into just the survivor lore. I think that, you know, first of all, she wasn't as bad as we remembered, which is fun, but I totally remember all of the Jerry backlash. That being said, Jerry is such an important character to just the development of Survivor. And I feel like she just not only does she not get enough credit, 
she gets almost like an ungodly negative amount of credit for it. So, uh, you know, I think that my big character change is just Jerry, just the fact that I appreciate what she did for this franchise so much. And I, and I just wish that more people remember that. Yeah. I like Mike's answer of the first four episodes of all stars because they are fantastically good. And I was not ready for that at all. Um, another thing is uh, scout. I don't remember appreciating Scout at all up until about a year ago, and now she's one of my favorite players of Vanuatu. I think she's hilarious and amazing. From a historian's perspective, from our radio show, you know, I never thought of Zoe as being interesting before. And somehow Paul got that in my head when we're doing Marquesa that Zoe is hilarious. I'm like, really, Zoe? And so now all I, wa- all I watch for when I'm watching Marquesa is little Zoe moments and similar to Gene moments in Amazon. So somehow this show, this show has warped my little brain. However, I will say my, my serious answer for the biggest change I had on a character is uh, Katie in Palau just recently. That I felt really bad for Katie at the end of the season. She has almost as rough an ending as Ian does. And I guess I didn't remember that. So that's my new thing is that I just remember Katie as being snarky and funny and hilarious. But she has a really rough time at the end of Palau. And it's kind of a double tragedy. It's not just Ian's tra- tragedy. It's Katie's too. So... That's the one big change I've had that it opens her up as a character a little bit. She's not quite so one-dimensional. All right. Ready for question three. Here we go. Question three from Matt Lant. I hope you guys have some secret insider knowledge on Jonathan Libby. I always thought it was hilarious how he got booted, and I figure there has to be more to it than what was shown. Jonathan Libby was a contestant on Survivor Palau. (laughs) These are facts. (laughs) Yeah, I have no secret insider knowledge. I've just heard uh, interviews saying that he was kind of a snob. He wouldn't talk to everybody. He was kind of antisocial. He, he kind of turned his nose up in people. And the people who felt that he was snubbing them just didn't like him. And so when it came to the popularity vote, they're like, I don't want him on my tribe. And nobody really wanted him because he hadn't really bonded with anyone. So that's it, all I've ever heard about it. And it didn't help that Kobe assumed there was going to be a tribal council that night and started spreading the word of, like, let's get rid of Jonathan. Because, you know, when you walk into that try pick him and you're like oh well everyone's gonna get rid of jonathan anyway so let's just eliminate him here and I, you know that means all the men are all the other men are gonna make it on i think that's that's when the fight or flight mode comes on rudy said in uh the all-stars commentary like he said with that first vote you don't a lot of times you don't even need a reason you just hear a name and it's not your name and you go with it and kobe started spreading jonathan hate sort of on that first day and it's either going to go one of two ways for kobe either jonathan is going to be the greatest human being alive and when kobe's going around going yeah that jonathan i don't like him much everyone's going to then look at kobe and go well where do you get off this guy's fantastic and kobe's going to be the one eliminated or Jonathan's just going to be whatever, and people then are hearing the name Jonathan, so then when there's a pick'em, he's an easy name to exclude because the name's been thrown around a lot, just like Rudy said, and that's what happened. But uh, they wanted insider knowledge, so uh, we'll say that Jonathan Libby actually got removed by producers because he smuggled a lantern into Palau through his ass. Yes, and he also was sick in uh, the Ponderosa previously so that nobody liked him. There you go. Your juicy gossip for the day. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Question four from Serena Macy. I was surprised when Mario mentioned that many listeners wanted you guys to shred Tom to pieces. Just as you guys mentioned on the podcast, I've always considered Tom to be one of the most beloved winners of all time. So what do you think happened to cause this change in perception where the audience doesn't like him? Is it Tom's not so great showing an early boot in Heroes vs. Villains? 
Um, I'll take that one. Um, I think just backlash, simply. I mean, whenever somebody gets super popular in Survivor, there's always a backlash. I mean, it happened with uh, Elizabeth, happens with uh, Rudy a little bit. It ha- definitely happened with, uh, um, who was I thinking of here? I don't know, uh, Rupert. Rupert, Stephanie, there's always a backlash against these guys that are almost universally liked. So I don't know. I just think uh, people don't like that Tom never gets criticism over the years, and they really kind of disliked him uh, uh, because of that. And also, I've always thought there's something that the Survivor fan base tends not to like these alpha males, these big, strong, middle-aged alpha males. They've never really liked that archetype on Survivor. So there's some people that just don't like Toms on Survivor. That's how I'd put it. Well, I'd amend that fact and say that the Survivor fan base that goes on the internet and joins message groups about Survivor don't tend to not like the alpha males so much. Uh, the casual fan that just tunes into Survivor and watches it, I think, generally tends to like alpha male sur- survivors, especially in the more modern era. But um, I-, I think you're right. I think that uh, more of the, and I don't want to say true Survivor fan base, but just the Survivor fan base that's active on the internet uh, skews uh, a- a- anti-alpha male. Though I will say, I think it's very indicative that when the Heroes vs. Villains cast was announced, I remember saying like, wow, Tom was a great get, considering yeah. that he he hadn't been on the show for five years and to he was, uh, you know, he was a New York City firefighter, and to have him, you know, dominant tribe and a tribe leader, so to bring him back was like that was, that was pretty awesome. Granted, as they talked about, he flamed out, he got unlucky, he got put in the minority alliance after you know five days on the island. But I mean, it, he was, I think, still even five years later, he was like, you know, when you think of heroes, you would think, oh, Tom Westman, yeah. And I don't think his showing in Heroes vs. Villains had anything to do with the backlash. That backlash was already well in place before that. Yeah, and like everything, though, you know, there's a lot of things that we've sort of talked about with in retrospect. Like just, you know, like with Rupert, you look back at Rupert's game in even in Pearl Islands, and you're like, well, I don't know exactly why we loved Rupert so much, because they did show a lot of flaws just with Rupert in general. But it, it, it has to be said, we didn't see it at the time. We were blind. We were just like, oh, my God, I love this guy, and I can't get enough. But I do remember when Heroes vs. Villains came out, and I mean, look, this is my 20th season of Survivor at that point. I've been there for this whole time. I've, I've started to, you know, have, you know, deep opinions on all this sort of stuff. And I remember, you know, when Tom was announced, like you, Mike, I was like, wow, good pick. Great guy. Awesome Heroes tribe person. But on the other hand, I was kind of like, why is he coming back? What's his purpose for being here? Because while people, there was a backlash against Tom, I'm kind of like, what's he going to prove by coming back? Because people universally at least go, yep, legit winner. Yep. All right. Uh, question five from Ryan Weiss. At what point did it start getting weird to still watch Survivor, where people started saying, wow, that show's still on? Mm. <laughs> um, uh. <laughs> I will say just... From mainstream media, I remember it happening around Marquesas, where most Survivor wasn't really talked about on mainstream websites or mainstream discussions anymore. It was kind of like, oh yeah, that show's still on. But it wasn't until Thailand the next season when my friends that were hardcores were kind of going, yeah, I don't really watch it anymore. So yep. I just remember between four and five somewhere. I, I agree. I think uh, I watched survivor with my family my my family all watched the first season together because it was a huge tv event obviously but my sister watched it with me through season seven and i think after all stars for her was like a big drop off and i think for a lot of the community it was like well they did all stars what are they going to do now just go back and the fact that they just went back to the formula and brought new people in i think may may have led to some people leaving just because they were like okay well i've 
they thought they've seen all they needed to see with Survivor after All-Stars and just left. I'll put it even earlier for me. Um, I started dating, uh, who is now my wife, uh, in the middle of Survivor Africa. And I didn't tell her about watching Survivor until Survivor Amazon. And her first season watching it with me was Survivor Pearl Islands. Wow. Mm. That's dedication. You held out for four seasons with her? Yeah, I mean, I said, I mean, we were we were in college mainly, so I mean, it's not like every evening we hang out. So like on Wednesday, in some of the days, I didn't watch the show live. I mean, I taped every episode, and if I didn't watch it, I would literally come home even that night, whenever you know, from a date or whatever, or studying or whatever was going on, and watch the show. So you know, sometimes I didn't catch the show live, live, but I caught it within the first couple hours of it being there. I would have to literally tape record. Those those episodes of Survivor, but I didn't miss one ever and and whatnot. But yeah, I mean, it was it was a lot of you know. I just have to take an hour to myself at some point and watch my episode of Survivor. <laughs> I had a friend in college who was like that with nine hundred two one zero. He would watch it on the sly. He didn't want anybody to know he was watching nine hundred two one zero every week. I had a roommate like my my college roommate and I. We watched um, sort of the end of uh, the first season and 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 the second season together and stuff like that. But but. Um, after that, I was kind of on my own. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Lonely Jay Fisher in college. What are you going to do? <laughs> All right. Question six from Matthew Wojus. A lot of people I know are upset that we barely have intellectual TV shows these days. Survivor gets labeled a dumb show for being morally bankrupt and not being about smarts. Is Survivor more cerebral than people give it credit for? Uh, for me, that's a big yes. In fact, I've always thought it shortchanges Survivor just calling it a strategy game because it's way more than a strategy game. And there's so many more interesting things going on with psychology and sociology and ethics that I think are fascinating. So I think it's absolutely a cerebral show or else we wouldn't still be talking about it. I mean, you don't talk about strategy games. We're not sitting here talking about press your luck. So it's like a – yeah, so I I think it's absolutely a very cerebral show and I don't think enough of – I don't think enough people really understand that, how deep of a show, so deep of a game it is really, but a show it is too. I would, I would posit that it's probably the biggest show that has the largest disparity between people on the TV and people on the couch. You know, they, they talk, talks about it a lot in, in Exile Island about how she's, she was one of those couch potatoes that would be like, what are you doing? You need to make this move. Why aren't you making this? But they don't even take into account they're in the middle of the wilderness with little to no supplies, and they need to worry about having a roof over their heads and having enough supplies while at the same time maintaining a, a good enough social game while also uh, juggling a bunch of different alliances. And then in later seasons, you have all these twists thrown in I- and looking for idols. So like, there's a lot of stuff to juggle that's more than the 42 minutes they show on the screen. But I think people watching it are like, oh, yeah, uh, they're just got to live on island and they vote each other out. Sounds pretty easy. Survivor is an incredibly cerebral show, Matthew. However, things that get labeled as cerebral shows tend to get canceled. That's a good point. That's true. <laughs> That's a fantastic point. Yeah, I mean, look at the Ian breakdown at the end of Palau. I mean, that's not just a strategy game. There's way more going on there. So it's just, yeah, it's, I don't know anybody could call Survivor a dumb, brainless game. It's, it's, it's a shame that it's been lumped in with other reality shows and games over the years because it's really nothing like a lot of them. It's because the reality genre blew up so big. And so people, to make sense of it, they lump it in there with other reality shows. And like I said, thing, if you're just like, this is a really smart show. You should watch it because it's a smart show. It's going to get canceled. Look at the mole. 
<laughs> yeah, the, the thing that always angered me about Survivor, especially when it was viewed in pop culture, even in its early days, was like, oh yeah, Survivor, you eat bugs. And I remember that's like the <laughs> one thing that every show on TV brought up when they made a reference to Survivor, and it still pisses me off to this day because I'd say it's like, even in the early days, it was like 1% eating bugs and 99% everything else. Yep. All right, question seven from John Simons. Wasn't season eight around the time David Letterman and Howard Stern stopped caring about Survivor and having every guest on their shows or every boot on their shows? Was that an indication that Survivor fatigue was setting in? And was there a general feeling that the show would probably winding down in another season or two? Um, that's kind of a two-part question. The thing with Howard Stern and David Letterman, this is if you weren't following the show all along, every single person who was booted on Survivor ended up on the early show the next morning. They would always end up on David Letterman, and they'd always end up on Howard Stern. And that's three huge media outlets for every single person who was booted on Survivor. That's what a big deal Survivor was. So, yeah, when they stopped showing up on Letterman and Stern in particular, that was kind of a signal that that pop culture had no interest in Survivor anymore. It was not really relevant anymore. So, yeah, that was a big deal in the kind of decline of the audience where just the diehards would be left. Because, yeah, once you stop bringing the Survivors out into the real world of pop culture of non-Survivor stuff, it's a big difference. All of a sudden, there's a lot of people who aren't even aware Survivor is still on the air anymore. So, yeah, th- I think that made a big difference in kind of this whole Survivor fatigue. That was absolutely an uh, indication that Survivor was losing a lot of its relevance. Yeah, I mean, there is that. I mean, Survivor fatigue is setting in, but again, it's it's one of those where it, independent of what the show's ratings are, Stern and Letterman and, and stuff like that, like CBS was trying to promote Survivor, and that's why they had a lot of those Survivor people on as well. But Survivor's a machine at this point. It's going, it's it's doing its thing. And so at that point, they're they're not just looking at promoting Survivor. They're also looking at the individual ratings of the segments that they're doing. And I bet you Stern and Letterman, they just kind of looked at the ratings of when the Survivor boot got on there, and they said, this is sort of a slight dip in our ratings. When we have this on there, we mean to not have it on there anymore. Yeah. Plus, it's a weird situation with All-Stars, too. You're like, welcome back. <laughs> yes. The, th- the thing with Letterman is particularly funny because Le- Letterman clearly never gave a shit about the survivors. He would just talk down to them. It was clear he wanted no part of them being on his show. So it was kind of funny. Like, yeah, I'm sure it- he didn't have to think twice about cutting that segment. He absolutely made no bones that he hated Survivor and thought this was stupid. All right. Uh, next question from Kyle Minault. What's your favorite moment from the first 10 seasons? And what's the season you look forward to the most? What does that second part of the question mean? Does that mean looking forward to for coverage or looking forward to when you, on a rewatch? Let's, I think on a rewatch. Yeah, oh. when you're rewatching. Oh, okay. I was going to say to coverage, that might be a good one too to answer. It could be. I don't, when, I, when I rewatch, I look forward to, well, Pearl Island is my favorite season, but I think Marquesas is a really fun watch. And I will say, I know this is a moment no one else is going to say. What is your one moment that's your favorite? That whole uh, Mara Amu comeback in episodes four, five, six, where it's Pappy and the three women coming back against this Rotu machine, and they win like a bunch of challenges in a row, and they're all exciting. I think that's some of the best TV I've ever seen. So that's that's what I always look forward to. The Rob was not here, and when Kathy and all of them jump up and down when they win that uh, the the Tiki challenge for the first time, the first oh, time yeah. they ever won a challenge. Oh, yeah. I just love those little moments. That's a little era, kind of an era of, uh, of Survivor, that little stretch in Marquesas that doesn't get mentioned much, but that's probably my favorite. 
Hmm. Um, I would say, yeah. I mean, if, if I'll uh, I'll go with the streak of episodes as well, and I'll say. I, I'm just going to do a cop-out answer, and I'll say the entire post-merge of Pearl Islands is probably the post-merge streak that I still look forward to. There are a lot of seasons, that amazing seasons, that have a lot of amazing post-merges. But for some reason, between the flip-flopping and all the things that happen and all the, the character moments that happen throughout, I, I still think it's the strongest post-merge ever. So once it gets to the merge and once the outcasts come back, I always look forward to that string of episodes. It's, it's, I, I think they're fantastic. You know, There's not a bad episode in that entire bunch. Uh, yeah, and I guess, huh, I guess I'll, I'll also give an answer of something I'm uh, looking forward to in coverage, uh, is Exile Island, and I still, I, I have gone forward to say, I, I think Exile Island is, on the whole, the funniest season of Survivor ever, and I am really, really ecstatic to take a look at it. Um, season to look forward to the most on a rewatch is probably my favorite season, Pearl Islands, I just love watching it. Um, I think the thing that I look forward to the most, ultimately, I mean, and this is probably a, a, a question down the line, and I guess I'll answer too. I think my favorite, one of my favorite things to watch, one of my favorite episodes, is actually just episode one of Pearl Islands. I just love it. I don't know yep. why. It's just such good TV to me. Favorite moment from the first ten seasons, in a shocking twist and turn of events, I think the moment that I could watch over and over again and never be bored and always be happy with is the Mixer Challenge in All Stars. <laughs> yeah, that was a good. That's a good answer. I just love that whole mixer reward that that is so funny and awesome and amazing and just like it's very meta it it, it it's making fun of itself it's laughing at itself it's it knows what it is in that moment it's such a good little bit why don't you just show him the box Jenna <laughs> and very quickly a season I look forward to most in coverage uh, without question Survivor China okay I guess I better answer that too I am looking forward to coach and token genes all right, uh, and, and, and fish back, right? No, coach oh. and token cheese. <laughs> Not even Tyson. Tyson one is pretty great. Okay, question nine from uh, Jericho McCune. This is a really good one. Over the first ten seasons of Survivor, which responses from the fan base do you think were the most surprising from production's point of view? Like when the fans reacted to a season, what do you think the producers were not expecting? Um. I had to think about this one for a while. I was thinking about it before we recorded. So I'm probably going to take an answer that you guys are going to give, and I apologize. But uh, I don't think the producers expected anyone to believe that Matt could have won Amazon. Because <laughs> that's, that's what I remember. Like Everyone thought Matt was going to win Amazon. It was a slam dunk. And if you watch the editing, there's no way Matt should have won. But everyone thought he was going to. And so this comeback of Jenna where she pulls off a 6-1 vote, this blowout – completely shocked and pissed off so much of the fan base and i can't believe the uh producers were expecting that they're like no 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 that's we did not tell a matt win storyline where are you guys getting this so i think that's one they were completely shocked by that that jenna win was unpopular Hmm. i would say i think production would be pretty shocked that the amber win was looked upon down upon for so long and still is to this day because i think I don't, looking back when we watched All-Stars, I don't think the editing was, you know, like Amber was edited pretty moderately. I don't think it was this Natalie White-esque thing of like her being invisible the entire game and then being bought out at the end. I think the editors did a good job of like telling her story. So I don't think that, I don't know if the producers thought that there's going to be such a backlash of, you know, casual fans saying Boston Rob should have won, Amber's the worst winner ever. 
I think, you know, I think that those are both good and probably supersede this point. But I think something needs to be said that I don't know if the editors expected or didn't expect uh, one way or another. But I think that the editors presented Lex Vandenberg in in Survivor Africa and just said, we're going to present him. And I don't know how this is going to go. I think that's a great answer. I think he has a very complex edit and the reaction to him was very complex, too. And so I, it's, it's not a matter of I think it went differently than they expected. I'm just going to say I don't think they thought they knew what, what was going to come out of Lex and what the fan base thought of him. But they were like, well, let's just show him and we'll see how it goes. Yep. And I've also never thought they expected the audience would hate Richard that much. Because Richard, Richard gets a pretty fair edit if you watch Borneo. He's not really a villain. But yeah, he just he was really shit on by the audience. All right, question 10 from Russ Bartlett. At what point did people stop thinking of Richard as the worst human being alive and start thinking him as the Survivor Messiah? Was it around the time Survivor stopped being so mainstream and more of a, wait, that show still exists thing? No. I would uh, disagree that he was ever seen as the Survivor Messiah, to be honest. Well, there's that, but I mean, I think people hold him in reverence because he's the first. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he, he's been such a, a decent ambassador. I mean, you know, legal issues and whatnot aside. I mean, he, he still goes to events and he's still very approachable. And I think that, you know, the first season and especially Richard Hatch, it's like because the show, I mean, Survivor is a success story. We are so many seasons into this show and it has lasted for so long. It is, it is the gold standard of reality television. And when a show becomes the gold standard, I think that the two people that have become canonized in Survivor over the years, one, you know, in, in as much as backlash as he gets, one's Jeff Probst as host uh, of the show, and the other one is Richard Hatch as our first winner. And I, I wouldn't say he's messianic, but at, at the same time, I mean, people are like, Richard Hatch, he's the, he's the guy. He won, he won that first season. It's taken a long time to get to that point, Russ. A long <laughs> time. Yeah, a very, very long time. <laughs> and it's funny, I always remember, I mean, I, I'm very much into Survivor history about the, the Burnett book, the reaction to the first season, the book The Stingray, that I've always seen Richard as kind of a failure as a winner. He never really engaged anybody. No one really rooted for him. After the show, he blew his chance to be a big celebrity. So, yeah, it's just hard for me to think that he was ever considered a Survivor Messiah. I Considering the guy that won the first season, he was a really good, interesting character, but I just don't see a lot of people looking up to him other than, oh yeah, Richard won, he won the first season, but he's never really been all that respected among the other players from what I see. But I could be wrong, I I don't go to the fan events and stuff, but yeah, I've just never seen him as being particularly, like you said, messianic. You guys still there? Yep. Yep. Oh, okay. (laughs) I can't tell sometimes. All right. Question 11 from James Pickers. Well, this is an easy one. <laughs> Which contestant has suffered the biggest fall in general fan opinion since the end of their season? Okay, besides Stephanie, who else could you say? <laughs> oh, I was just going to say Stephanie? <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could go, you can make the argument that Rupert, there's kind of some Rupert overkill, but there's nothing that will ever compare to Stephanie's fall. Yeah, I guess thinking about some more, um, I mean, I think. A lot of the Pagongs, especially since the season, has, this the series has become more associated around this alliance-based strategy. I think a, a stock with a lot of Pagongs has fallen, considering they were still some of the most popular people even among the first ten seasons. You know, at the end of two, the middle of two thousand five, when season ten ended. But the fact that like some people, some people on the internet even like crap on them 
to this day is is completely in opposition to the way that they were revered for a long, long time when they first hit the beach in Borneo. Yeah, I think that you know that as we said, the answer's got to be Stephanie, and it's she's a cautionary tale for playing again and whatnot. But it's it's tough because you know you had people like Boston Robin Lex in their fight in Survivor All Stars, but it's like you know people were very complicated, had very complicated opinions about Lex going in. So it's not like he was like some golden boy hero and then came out of there as some sort of goat. I mean, it was just, I think people had complex feelings about him going in and they left with complex feelings. And, and Rob came out, I think for the better on the exchange, even though some people didn't like him. I mean, you know, it's very polarizing. So you kind of have to look at, at people that came back or, or, or as Mike, I think that the Pagong answer is a really good one because over time, then people are just like, what's, what's the matter with those Pagongs? And it's like, you know, you gotta you gotta add context into that season. Uh, just because I want to name one other person other than Stephanie, I, I think the Pagong answer is great. I think Lex is a great answer, but Kathy, we should mention. I mean, Kathy is in the same category as Stephanie. They're so popular that they have nowhere to go but down. So yeah. Kathy had to go down, mm-hmm. and the other one is Rob Sesternino. I mean, he yeah. was the greatest yeah. thing since sliced bread after season six. And yes, he's got the podcast now, but. Ten people tend to only remember him for the podcast now, and but again, he was the new Richard. He was the face of the franchise for like a season and a half. There, fast forwarding many many seasons later, Colby's going to share one after Heroes vs. Villains, but we're not anywhere close to that yet. Yep. All right. Uh, question twelve from Kyle Ray Piper. After ten seasons, did you guys feel Survivor was about surviving still, or did you guys feel that it had jumped the shark and it was about too much strategy, not enough character building? Um, right there, just, I just want to say one thing that it's always been a misconception that survivor was ever about surviving in the, in the elements or surviving the outdoors survivor refers to surviving the game. You are the one left at the end. So I don't think it's ever been about surviving. So the, the first part of the question, do you think it wasn't about surviving anymore? I, th- I don't think survivor has ever changed in that. That's what the title implies. You survive the game. You are the only person who gets to the end. So I don't think it's ever changed from that perspective. Agreed. Yeah. Now, was there too much strategy talk? I don't know. I'm really sensitive to watching the show, and all you see is strategy this, strategy this, split the vote that. I mean, I find that really boring. And in my latest rewatch through season 10, I don't see really that happening at all. So, no, I didn't think that it was super strategy heavy yet by season 10. Season 10 is not much different than season 2. They're still, it's still pretty much the same show, so I didn't think much had changed by now. Yeah, I would say that throughout specifically specifically like i'm gonna look at like let's look at all 10 final fours throughout this throughout the the first 10 seasons i would say the only one person that we really didn't know you know slim to none things about was jen from survivor palau i feel like everyone else in that end game we knew things about and i think that speaks testament to how they edited their characters even a season like palau which some people would call bloated you know they started with 20 people and they had double tribal councils and you had some people not get a lot of airtime at the beginning i think they still built a big cast of characters to pick between so i think that that speaks that's a big testament to the way survivor was edited and the way survivor was cast even in those questionable mactor seasons there's going to be a shift, and in, in there, more strategy is going to be shown, but it's a result of the game getting more and more complicated, and Survivor responded by showing less character development and more strategy, which 
I mean, it's it's a choice that they made, and I think that the change is is not going to be for another couple of seasons. I think you know Cook Islands really starts. I think the ball rolling in that direction. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I think that you know, as far as jumping the shark as opposed to more strategy, I don't necessarily think so either. And and again, I will say, even though it's not what I prefer and it's not what I want to see out of Survivor, I understand the change. I'm not saying I like or or, or anything like that. I understand it. All right, question 13 from Brian Gold. How have Survivor fan opinions of the first 10 seasons most evolved since their initial airing? What people or seasons were hated then and are beloved now, or vice versa? For people who weren't there at the time, a lot of people would be surprised by certain opinions. Um, We've talked a lot about this. uh, Chris, in particular, Chris and Vanuatu, absolutely not loved at the time. Almost universally loved now. I mean, that could just be biased because I love it so much, but I, see, I hear Vanuatu praised as much as any other season now. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, Africa was almost universally beloved at the time, from what I recall. Most people think it's kind of boring now. Uh, you get that a lot about Borneo, too. Like, almost nobody said bad stuff about Borneo back in the day. Now, it's there's a lot of people who just refuse to watch it. I can't watch it. It's not Survivor. So those are some easy, obvious ones. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we touched upon a couple ones earlier about how Pearl Islands at the time wasn't like a big like you know aside from dead grandma and rupert it wasn't a big water cooler season it was only after the fact that people really revel in it uh we talked about richard as a winner we talked about a couple questions ago about how you know it wasn't until recently that really he was heralded heralded as this like survivor god uh so those are a couple as well and that comes part and parcel with i think just the general opinion of the first 10 seasons i think that you know i don't think that people People who started watching the show from sort of the Russell Hance era on, there are, of course, exceptions. So if this does not apply to you, of course, you know, every, everyone's, your results may vary. But a lot of people who started from the Russell Hance type seasons started watching a game that had, that had like an extreme level of complexity and also had all of these wrinkles that didn't exist in the first game. And so when they go back and look at the seasons, they just look at it and they go, this is boring. There's no hidden immunity idols. There's no idol search. There's no split votes. There's no this, there's no that. And it's like, because it didn't exist then. And, you know, some people look back on it and go, wow, look at the character development. Look at, you know, all the stuff that's going on there. And then some people look back on it and go, this is boring. This is not what I want. So the first 10 seasons, I think, have just gone through a shift depending on, what your value of Survivor is. I will tell you, here's a kind of a, uh, an odd answer yeah, you won't hear from most people, but it's, it's something I've noticed a lot lately. Here is a sentence I never would have heard back in 2002. Oh, I loved Clay. I think Clay should have won. <laughs> <laughs> I hear that a lot now, and I, you've never heard that anywhere. No one liked Clay at the time. I mean, nobody was going on message boards talking about how funny he was or how awesome he was. Like, He was one of the most hated players ever. He was the goat of all goats. It was understood that Brian Heideck was 50 times the player that Clay was. But nowadays, you'll hear just as many people saying that Clay almost won, he should have won, and he was a great player. So it's just that is one perception that has changed enormously. If somebody said that back then, they'd whoop their ass and send them to bed. <laughs> yes. And it is nice I hear a praise about Vesepia every so often now because that, of course, never happened back in the day too. So Clay and Vesepia have come around a little bit. Clay much more so though. All right. Uh, question 14 from Spencer Wilson. What do you think were the most important contestants in Survivor's first 10 seasons? 
whether as winners, losers, heroes, villains, or anywhere in between? Well, Richard's the obvious one. I mean, you got Rupert, you got Jerry, you got the big one, Stephanie. Um, I love the Amy. I, th- I always mention Amy. Amy was a huge character. I think Tina. Tina is maybe the most interesting character ever. I just love her win in Australia. I mean, you got Ethan as the first popular winner. I'm trying to think of any obvious ones I'm forgetting. Uh, F- Fair plays a fun one because I think he was the first outright vi- edited villain in Survivor. Yeah. As far as you know, imp- important, as far as archetypes, I think the three that need to be mentioned is um, Colby, Jerry, yeah. and Rob Sesternino. Yeah. All need to be mentioned. And I have to bite the bullet and mention Boston Rob. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and Colleen, we mustn't forget Colleen. Uh, we, we can, but you, know, you can't. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Gabriel, are we mentioning Gabriel? We really aren't, but <laughs> no. you certainly can. Uh, now it's in there. Yeah. Now, now we're in this range. Well, Butch, uh, Zoe. Uh, <laughs> well, remember Sarge? He went to Europe. Oh, yeah. Well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, the, the, the most important characters are the obvious ones. And the one I always like to just throw in there is Amy because she never gets mentioned, but she was a big deal. Uh, what do we got here? Number 15 from Scott McCulloch. Was there a player in the first 10 seasons who was edited in such a way as to make viewers believe they were a major player in the season, but from exit interviews and insider knowledge was shown not to have much, of any, much if any, impact on the season? You mean other than Rupert? <laughs> Rupert, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, let's see here. Hmm. I, I can think of a lot of cases where it's the opposite, but I can't think of a lot with that case to it. Again, you always have to know, and, and, and Mario's mentioned this, we, we've talked about this before, Mario's mentioned it with his running of that one uh, ORG that he did the one time, but like everyone that leaves the game has their own narrative of the game, right? So a lot of people are coming out going, you know, really, I was in control, and it's like the edit shows differently, but the edit's not the be-all, end-all. They're telling a story. They may be manipulating what happened on the island for, you know, storyline purposes and stuff like that, but I mean, Rupert's really the only one off the top of my head to where, you know, he's out there and then all of the other Pearl Islanders are interviews going like, I don't understand why he's such a big deal. I feel like we should name, I, there should be a name we can come up with. I feel like we're not really given one other than Rupert. All right, let's think here. Um, yeah, damn you, you made us think. I would say, um, I would argue maybe Lex, just because I feel like for every decision that's shown Lex is making, I feel like Ethan and Big Tom are there to also help, and a little bit of Kim Johnson as well. So like, I think it was much more about the Baron foursome than it was about Lex spearheading every decision. Yeah, no, that's a good point. You could say the same thing in All-Stars that I'm sure Tom was making many of the same decisions that Boston Rob was, but Boston Rob gets credit for everything. And again, you can go with like Sean Rector and Vesepia that I mentioned earlier. That overthrow of Hunter in episode four, Boston Rob gets all the credit for that. But, you know, Sean and, and Vesepia were right there too making the same choice. So I don't know. This is a tough call because we don't really know who was important out there. All we know is what we've seen in interviews or what we've seen in behind the scenes stuff. But we don't really know who was that important and who wasn't. All right, uh, let's move on to uh, question 16 from Chris Madison. Is season one really the best? Is Richard Hatch really the greatest ever play? Uh, I would say no and no. I can, no yeah, I can, no, I'm, no, I'm no, fine no. if you argue that yes and yes. I can see an argument for that. My personal opinion is no and no, but we're not as reverential of Borneo here as you think we are. That's one thing that's come up through these questions. Season one is season one's the best in the sense that it was it caught the lightning in the bottle and made the phenomenon. I mean, season one has made everything else possible 
but that doesn't necessarily mean it's the best season. Like it, it season one had to be what it was in order for survivor to survive. And you always have to give it the credit, but I don't know if that makes it the best. Exactly. I, I think it actually loses benefit from the fact that it was the first and that all these other seasons can look back on it and be like, okay, that's how I should or shouldn't play the game. This is what I should and shouldn't do. And they're able to use that as kind of a, a copy, you know, it's, it's, you always, you always lose some added benefit by going first for anything. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, season one is really the only real survivor. You can only do survivor once, and after that, it's everyone's figured out what to do. It's one of those things. Um, in terms of, is Richard the best player? I would say no, and only because Brian Heideck, I think, is so fantastic. Although, I do have to bring up something about Richard. I think he's overrated and underrated in different areas. The stuff mm. he gets credit for, I don't think he was that amazing at, but the stuff people don't give him credit for, I think he was really good at, like... You think he was so good at strategy, we came up with the alliance. Well, anybody could have come up with the alliance. The the Pagongs were talking about it, too. They just all thought it was cheating, and they didn't want to cheat and win a game and get ripped apart by the audience at home. So it's not that Richard came up with alliances. He's just the one that said, you know, fuck it, I don't care. It's not cheating. I'm going to win this way. So, So strategy, I think he's a little overrated, but his social game is completely underrated because, again, that's why he won. People respected him because he was able to explain what he was doing and why. And he never deviated from that. He built bonds with people. They respected him. So it's one of those, I think he's better than you think he is in some stuff, but he's not as good as he gets credit for in other stuff. But I do think Heidek's the best player. There's a thing that a lot of sports um, stat heads have come up with, and this AccuScore is the one thing. And it's where they try to predict the outcome of of a game, a baseball game, a football game, whatever is going on. And what they do is they take all of the variables and they simulate the game in a computer program. And they basically simulate the game like a thousand times or 2000 times or something. And they tell you the percentage that one team wins over the other. So like one team wins 65% of the time we run the simulation, we ran it, you know, a thousand times. So they've got like a large sample size. I think if you try to extrapolate that with players in survivor, I think a player like Brian Heideck and especially a pair, a player like Kim Spradlin go to the end or win a large percent of the of the games that they would be put in with random strangers. And I think that Richard Hatch does well in a lot of those games. But I don't know if Richard Hatch wins as much as some of those other people does. Yeah, he's he's got a real danger zone at the start of any game because he's annoying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's the thing. Like uh, Sandra has a horrible danger zone at the start of any Survivor game because she's so bad in challenges. So it's just some of these people like Cam and Heidek don't have that weakness at the start. Yeah. Yeah. All right. uh, Question 17 from David Mitchells. Other than the season finales (laughs) and the first episode of Borneo, what is your favorite episode of the first 10 seasons? (laughs) A lot of assumptions on this listener question podcast. Everyone thinks we love Borneo so much. Yeah. Okay. Other than the season finales and the first episode of Borneo, what's your favorite episode of the first 10 seasons? And what is your favorite season finale? That's a whole other question because I don't know if I'd put any season finale in my top. No. Okay. We're just saying favorite episode and then favorite finale. Okay. All right. There's a lot of favorite episodes. I can name about 10. I'm just going to pick one off the top of my head that I think is so artistic and I love the way it's done. And that's the Rupert episode in Pearl Islands. Uh, What is that? The snakes? Swimming with snakes? Yeah. Yeah. Swimming with sharks? Swimming with sharks. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. That's. I never know episode titles. That's completely typical for me. But yeah, I think that is a fantastic episode. There's so much art artistry in that episode that I just love it. But there's other ones like the Scoopin' episode I think is fantastic too, but I go with the Rupert one. Hmm. I'm trying to think of... As Mike's thinking, what's your favorite finale, Mario? 
Um, it's hard not to say Vanuatu. <laughs> I love the Vanuatu finale. If I have to pick a second one, the Palau one is just as good almost. I love the Thailand one. A lot of people forget that one. It's just, I mean, it's just pure Heidek domination, but it's, it's really well done. But Vanuatu, that's the stuff that dreams are made of, that finale, if you like, Chris. Let's see. All right. So I would say, oh, God, this is tough. My favorite episode of the first 10 seasons. Huh. I would. It's tough because I feel like a lot of the great episodes have great fallout in the next episode. Uh, you know, like you ha- like I'm thinking about a lot of Amazon stuff and like that Alex boot. It's so much fun to watch it the day after and watching the girls be extremely angry at Rob and then have them vote with him afterwards. Uh, if I could pick one, oh God, um, I, I would have to say for cathartic reasons, I would love, I think it's, no, it's, it's, uh, it's the final five episode in Pearl Island. It's not, would you be my Brutus tonight? Cause that's the final six one, but I forget the name of the final five one in, uh, in Pearl Islands, but that's just, I think it's just a very <laughs> cathartic thing. Just watching, especially watching John and Burton's arc through the entire post merge of being the swing votes the entire time. One. And then getting completely owned by Sandra, who has been like in such the, the you know she's been in the majority a couple of votes, but she's been in the minority the basically the entire uh, post merge after Rupert's voted out. So to, to have her and the girls own them, and you know to have them go on the reward and everything, and uh, I love the I'll screw you, I'll swear I'll screw you and Burton moment is just <laughs> it's it's a, a really well put together episode in terms of season finales. Um, the Chris one's a lot of fun to watch. The problem with a lot of season finales for me is that there's one, there's always one vote off that is okay, and then one that's really good. Uh, but the Vanuatu one is a lot of fun just because it's a, it's a it's a fun composite of characters. Uh, the Pearl Islands one for that reason too, just because the Dara boot is like a little WTF, but I love that immunity challenge against the jury, even though that's a little WTF as well. Um, and I mean, you got to go with Borneo too. I think Borneo was an epic episode from start to finish. Yeah, I would almost put Borneo's finale as one of my favorites, um, just because it's so raw, and, and not raw in the sense that everyone's so upset, but just, again, people are figuring it out, and I think that's a fun element to it. Um, I think another another finale that actually I enjoy very much personally, because I think that Vanuatu is an easy answer, and, and Pearl Islands is a lot of fun as well. I love Africa's finale. I don't know why. I just do. Um you know, just Tom's got weird... I mean, Kim Johnson answering f- final questions. I mean, how can you go wrong with that? That's fantastic. It's so bad. Um, favorite episode? Oh, shoot. I think artistically, I would either have to put the Scoopin episode in, mm-hmm. Af- in, in Australia. And I think that the other uh, episode that I love artistically is uh, the episode in Australia with the Flood. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. It's really good. Uh, just the way it's shot, the way it's done. You know, Col- Col- Colby going on the reward and then coming back. I mean, it, it's just heartbreaking and, and yet just compelling television at the same time. I think my favorite one, though, again, I mentioned before, episode one, Pearl Islands. Just the whole thing in the village. I, it's just good. It's just fun. I could watch it over and over again and never be bored. There's one more episode I got to throw out there. I already named my favorite, but I want to give this one some love because nobody ever talks about it. It's the episode in Thailand where Aaron goes home. Oh, the uh, the the super emo uh, yeah. Sukjai episode. Yeah. yeah, yeah. There's one challenge like ten minutes into the episode, and then it's forty minutes of them just having a nervous breakdown because they got to vote out one of their little family. And there's never been another episode like that. And a lot of people hate it, but I just love the emotion in that episode. Mm-hmm. That's good too. 
All right. Uh, question 18 from Logan Saunders. Would you agree with me that Guatemala is the true conclusion to the classic era of Survivor and that after the transitional era, we head into 14 and beyond, which can all be grouped into the modern era? So do you think Guatemala is really the end of early Survivor? Yeah, I, I would say I think I personally was a lot more trepidatious after All-Stars just because I was I was a little bit of like, all right, what did they do from here? But then I was I was looking back and I'm very happy to see that they just went they went back to basics and they went forward from there because I I think it was a little nerve wracking at the time because they they you know they proverbially blew their wad with this big let's bring back all these characters and have these big epic moments and then they're like what happens from there? But they were able to kind of start over and pursue it from there. All right, uh, question twenty. Was Ethan still considered the most beloved winner after season 10, or was Tom more respected as a winner? Um, for me, this is a, there are different levels of respect. This is like how I said Rupert and Stephanie were different type of heroes. Ethan was respected as a winner because it was like, you know, we like that guy. We like Ethan. Oh, good for him. With Tom, the respect was more like Tom was a fucking boss. Tom owned that season. So it was a whole different level of respect. It really depends on what your definition of respect was. The way I look at it is, who did you think was the best winner that the fans really got behind as being like a great player? Um, that's Tom, and I mean, he, way over Ethan. So I think Tom was head and shoulders above Ethan as the most respected winner at that point. Yeah, and I, th- I think it also is testament to the the way they played the game as well. I mean, as we talked about before, Ethan was more of a kind of like a, a quote-unquote number two man where he... Uh, you know, it was Lex was shown to be making a lot of the decisions, uh, and Ethan was was just a, a very nice, likable guy. Whereas Tom, you know, he's put a, his he has his back against the wall a multitude of times, and he was he was seen as the leader from almost the first day. So I think uh, on paper, if you look at the situations, Tom's situation is quote unquote more admirable. Uh, so that might put his win a little bit higher. Question twenty one from Munib Khan. Do you think the producers were purposely trying to distance themselves with a clean slate from the first seven seasons due to the ugliness of All-Stars? Is this the moment Survivor started not to embrace its history anymore? Uh, That's always been my theory. There's no way to prove it, but yeah, once you started with season nine, they didn't really mention seasons one through eight anymore. You'll notice when we got to Micronesia, nobody came back from those early seasons. So, yeah, I think they really purposely did kind of start a new slate. I mean, Survivor was kind of done. The first eight seasons had its all-stars. It really wrapped up. It was, that was how it was supposed to end, and they kind of started anew. So, yeah, I, I've always believed they, they purposely tried to kind of start the franchise over after all-stars. <laughs> I got nothing to add. <laughs> here, 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 here. Sure. Yeah. Fuck Yeah. <laughs> All right, uh, question 22 from James Pickers. Who was the most underrated character of the first 10 seasons? Zoe. Gene. Underrated characters of the first 10 seasons. Let's see. Well, Zoe and Jean. we got to finish the question. We have seen people right. like Parvati, right. Amanda, and Russell. Great season 1 to 10 characters become go-to names when Survivor is mentioned to the casual fan. Who are the people that you guys are sad that are the forgotten souls these days, Butch? Um, it's a good question. What do you guys think? T-Bird. Uh, T-Bird T- was as important as anybody. 
Um, Maybe not important, but big. Sorry, go ahead. I was saying, uh, it wasn't at the time, but I would say definitely nowadays, Amy Cusack is a huge one. Mario, you hit the nail on the head, and we talked about in our Vanuatu coverage about what a complex character she was, about looking back, how she really wasn't the villain that we remember her to be. And it's, it, it is a shame that, like, looking back on it, she's not remembered as one of the bigger characters, partly because Micronesia, she really didn't do anything. But man, she, she kills it as a character in Vanuatu. I think some of the people that, you know, we've mentioned on the podcast, so maybe they've seen a bit of a resurgence, but, you know, certainly people that diminished, especially after All-Stars, and I think rarely get mentioned these days, I think you need to mention people like Kathy, even, mm-hmm. um, that, that people sort of forget was, was a big thing for a long time, um, and, and nobody really remembers Helen. Helen. I was just going to say Helen and Dina. I always say Helen and, and Dina, Dina, those and two Dina. together. Yeah, Dina, absolutely, Dina. And let's go back to one of the great forgotten villains in Survivor history, John Carroll. Yeah, that's good, too. That's also a good answer. I think you know, so a lot of that stuff from Marquesas and, and, uh, and Thailand sort of really get overlooked. And, and, and Dina. My God, Dina. All right. And Zoe and Jean, of course. And Butch. And Butch, yeah. I'm sorry. And Krista. Don't forget Krista. <laughs> you know, if, if Krista were here, how would she answer this question? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I, I don't know, Mario, what you would say about that question. Hey, lovey. <laughs> <laughs> Who's my cream puff? I am, Robert. I have nothing to contribute to this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're still working on an impression from me. Yeah, he's working on his... Uh, there's a Brandon Bellinger impression for next season. Hey, Mike, why, uh, don't, you, uh, why don't you go work on uh, your talent there? <laughs> uh, Judd had a premature evacuation. <laughs> That's not bad, actually. <laughs> I'll, I'll work on it before we cover Guatemala. I'm, I'm actually a preview for all of you guys Guatemala. I'm working on my Hogaboom. It's going to be fantastic when we get there. <laughs> We're all just squirrels trying to get a damn nut, man. Damn. <laughs> all right. Question 23. This, is, uh, this question makes me laugh. From Cameron Johnson. Which modern-day season characters do you think would have made the first few seasons even more dynamic or revolutionary, and why are they Coach and Cass? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I love Coach, I love Cass. They would have been fantastic on an early season. I actually disagree with Coach on an early season, to tell you the truth. Um, I'm trying to think. Well, I he feel doesn't like, I feel, fit in Australia. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, feel like, I feel like if Coach was on, he would be... They wouldn't know really, what to do with him. Yeah, I feel like he'd be an early boot. Like I feel like the at a certain point in Survivor history, I think that both the producers and the the castaways like put up with a certain amount of people. I think if you put Coach on in Borneo, they're like, no, goodbye. <laughs> not, not only that, but Coach, especially the first few versions of Coach, there's a wink to the camera with Coach, and I don't think Survivor it like Survivor's cheesy in the first few seasons. I mean, it's not like Survivor's some serious ass you know television show. But I think the coach is not quite right for those first few seasons. So I actually disagree with that. Cass, on the other hand, you can fit on any season, and Cass would be amazing. I think Cass said recently she applied to be on the first season of The Apprentice. Oh, my so, God. I mean, she, that she was so good. Yeah, she was applying to reality shows way back then. So she really could have been on an early season of Survivor. Uh, let's see. I'm thinking about some other ones. I think I'm a big fan of Tyson 1.0, and I think he would have... You know, you have a lot of deadpan people on there. Rob Cesternino is one of them. Uh, you know, you have your Greg, your Greg a little bit in Borneo. I think he, I think if you throw him in into one of those seasons that those guys aren't on, I think he'd be a lot of fun. I would love to see James Clement on an early season, and I would love to see Tony on an early season. Tony would be interesting. Um, 
I'm trying to think who I would love to see on an early season. Kelly Purple? No. Really no. <laughs> um you know who would be good? I don't know if I don't know if they would fit the bill of, you know, somebody that would revolutionize an early season, but someone that I think would 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 do well in an early season would be Marty from Nicaragua. Nicaragua. Yeah, that's yeah. a good one. Um to the, to the same extent, I would love to see one of these. Like, I would love to see like a Holly Hoffman or a Don Meehan or a Lisa Welchel play in the early sure. seasons. Lisa Welchel seems to me, she seems really, she's like a very early character in terms of her editing and her character type to me. So I thought, you know, did she say like she she hadn't been applying, but she had been interested like from the beginning? It would have been interesting to see her on an earlier season. I would have loved to see Sophie on a season like Amazon. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> And of course, Leaf. I mean, he's going to be TV gold in any season. <laughs> I want to see. I want to see Leaf on Gabon next to Crystal Cox. <laughs> All right. Um, oh, Fabio. Fabio would be fun on an early season. He could be a perfect Pagan. Yeah. All right. Uh, question twenty-four. <laughs> Another funny question from Russ Bartlett. How many? How many people thought the first ten seasons were so boring? And what the franchise really needed was a magical totem that could negate votes. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> no, nobody thought the first ten seasons were boring. There was no, there was no overly or underlying opinion among the fan base that you know this scene, this show really needs changes. We need to start throwing new things in there. So, I know a lot of people will mention that the season had to start throwing in twists and stuff because the audience demanded it. But no, they didn't. Like. I don't remember anybody after season 10 saying we need to start throwing in lots of twists. We had implicit trust in the show. And as you said, Mario, Guatemala is the first time where maybe the producers felt like they failed at something. But we, the audience, we're still going with the show, right? So when they introduce things like, well, we're going to have 18 characters instead of 16, you're like, cool, nine tribes of nine, cool. You know, and, and you know, they, they're like, we're going to send someone to Exile Island. You're like, all right. It's like you didn't we didn't really like sit there and analyze a lot of these things beforehand like we do now. And, and, and we just accepted that, you know, things were going to be all right, you know, and, and it only became after a while to where, you know, all these things are in the game where we just stopped and said, Hey, wait a minute. Why, why do we have all this stuff now? All right. Uh, question 25 from Charlie D. She writes, which minor characters did you guys love most of the first 10 seasons? Which- you know, <laughs> I know Zoe, Jean. Go, go get it out of your system. On the flip side, which major characters did you think were the most overrated? That's a good one right there. That's a fun one. All right. Minor characters we loved and major characters that were overrated. I tell you who I love now is Kimmy. I couldn't stand Kimmy at the time. Uh, I'm trying to think. Minor characters who I loved. So they would probably be pre-jury. That's how I'm going to define minor characters. I'd figure anybody's a major character if they made the jury. I I was uh, I still don't know why, but I was a big Dara fan during Pearl Islands and I, I, I appreciate her now. I, I love her southern drawl and I mean she has great moments like the John lies but he tells the truth too. But I think even though she's under the radar, she's a, she's a fun character. Minor characters that we loved here. Hmm. Well, I, it's probably too cliche to say Gabriel, but I mean... Obviously, I think the whole storyline of, of Marquesas revolves around Gabriel, so I, that he's my, my non-ironic uh, answer. Um, as far as major ones that I think are overrated, I think that Alicia Calloway is probably, you know, like a huge Survivor character. And again, you didn't necessarily question her her uh, involvement in Survivor All-Stars. At the same time, I just cannot fathom 
I mean, it's one where, like, look, it's okay that you're a big character and that you're a memorable person and you're not necessarily good at the game of Survivor. I get it. We love Rupert. You know what I mean? Like, it's okay. But at the same time, she's just monumentally horrible at this game. Like, just <laughs> really bad. And and, and it's, just, it's so much so that when I go back and watch, like, you know, Outback and uh, Australia, or sorry, Outback and All Stars, I'm just like, oh my God, what's going on with her? Uh, a minor character also that I would I I really enjoyed was uh, Miss Watermelon Seed Spitting Champion Gina. <laughs> Gina's yeah. good. It's a good pick. Um, I guess it's too cliche for me to say Boston Rob would be my most overrated character, but I, I think I'm going to say Boston Rob. <laughs> I am not shocked by this <laughs> yeah. turn of events. Yeah, I said Gabriel and Boston Rob. Who put money on those two? I did, and I got nothing because the odds were too bad for us <laughs> to do that. Um, I would say, in terms of major characters at the time, I because of what happened with All Stars, I Big Tom left a really bad taste in my mouth. But I was lucky to, that we were able to go back and watch you guys watch Africa and we watched All Stars together, just because I mean he is such a fantastic character, and I'm glad that the ending did not sour it for me once more. Um, I think that a minor character that I love. I mean, uh, I know that people do give him some attention from time to time, but I mean, I don't think that we could talk enough about Rob Zabachnik. Yeah. And I also have to throw in Silas, although I, I consider him a major character. I don't think most people do, but he's a minor character that I absolutely love. All right. Uh, question 26 from Kyle Ray Piper. Who was the winner that you thought that you look back thought deserved it the most and which winner didn't deserve it? Um, Right off the bat, I will tell you, I will never say a winner doesn't deserve it. I think every winner is amazing, so I'm not even going to answer which winner didn't deserve it. It's a very weird question when you talk about deserve and play and winner, because the, yeah. the object is to win, right? And, and, but at the same time, I don't necessarily agree with the blanket statement that the winner necessarily played the best game. Because if you're talking about play, as far as you know, like controlling votes and strategy, I mean, it, but it boils down to what is the game of Survivor? I mean, the game of Survivor is to get the jury to vote you a million dollars, and the winner obviously does that. So by default, they've played the best game. But that's not when when people say play the best game, that's not necessarily what they're talking about. And I understand that as well. But as far as deserving, I mean, if you get the most votes by the jury, you deserve to win, right? Yeah, I mean, by that definition. Uh, Tom and Jenna deserved it the most because they got almost all the jury votes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and Sandra. It's hard to, yeah, say, exactly. I mean, these they dominated that jury vote. They deserved to win. I don't know how you can say they didn't. Um, question 27 from Charlie D. Who in the first 10 seasons was the worst player? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's such a knee-jerk to say a first boot because a lot of times first boots are just being super aggressive and it just failed. Yeah. I mean, like Deb. Deb was going for a coup. It didn't work. But so so let's so let's say let's take first boots out of it. I I think my bias is showing a little bit, but I I don't know. I I might have to say Karen. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just feel like she she didn't conceptualize a lot of the social aspects of the game, and I think the fact that she was you know she had she was kind of like one of Tom's quote unquote pawns, but to have her basically be on the outs the entire game except for maybe one or two votes, I think is very tantamount to what her playing style was like. Granted, she still made it to Final Five, but, I mean, I, it wasn't a very impressive game to look at. Yeah, a lot of the times, really bad players can get far. And that will tie in nicely with my answer of Lil. 
who I I know people hate that answer. They're like, well, she got to the final two. She can't be that bad. And I always point out she was rejected socially three times in that game. They voted her out of Morgan because she was a failure and they, she was annoying. Then the outcast kicked her out because they didn't want to spend their vacation with her. And then she gets to the final two and everyone just goes there because they want to talk shit about her and they, she gets crushed in the final vote. So she is soundly rejected three different times in the same game. And I, I don't see how you could be a worse social player than that. So I, I, I just I always say Lil just because I can't think of any, another answer that's, that's obvious. Lil's a good answer. I mean, you know, and a, and a lot of people might argue and say, well, you know, she controlled the vote when she came back from the outcast system. And the answer is yes, but unwittingly. And, you know, it was, it, it, it's as it was. I don't think that Alicia was a very good player, especially in All-Stars. Um, and it just rankles me. Like, anytime you, and it's like with Karen, it's, it's not the same as Sandra. Like, Sandra's got the, I'm going to be anybody but me. Be like, you know, be like the water flowing through the stream and, and all that sort of stuff. That's not what they were doing. They basically came out there and said, I am going to not have an alliance with people. What? <laughs> no, it's a good point. What? <laughs> what? You're full of baloney, Jay. Eh, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> um, another name I got to throw out there is Christy. Who I'm just, it's stunning how bad she is at survivor too. When I watch Amazon, and I know you're not supposed to pick on her, but Christy is not a good player either. Any other names to throw out there? Anybody else we're going to get hate mail from? <laughs> Just pick people who would never listen to the show so you can't get hate mail. Like, uh, Dirk. It. Yeah, Greg, who's Dirk? We need to take Dirk down right now. Well, I guess if, you, if you're doing that, I mean, Dr. Sean's got to make some yeah. sort of... Yeah, uh, unfortunately, unfortunately, looking back, it wasn't... It was, it's, it's not... It's a horrible strategy. The, the, the alphabet strategy, while, while, while comic and, and, and fantastic, I mean, it could be horrifically bad. And by could be, I mean, it definitely is. Yeah. And also, fuck you, Colleen Haskell. I dare you to write me an email and say how much you hate the show. All right, next up. Question 28 from Logan Saunders. Can you talk about how Survivor stayed away from casting major celebrities and were able to stick with regular people or little-known actors? Um, that's not that difficult because Survivor was about casting everyday people and throwing them into the island. So why would you want celebrities on the show? Yeah. <laughs> I don't see anything Plus, complicated. I mean, like, there's a great difference between something like Celebrity Apprentice and then Celebrity Survivor. I mean, not only do you have to, A, jack up the fees even behind, beyond all-star levels that you used to pay people, you also have to grab people that are willing to actually go out onto an island and starve themselves for a certain amount of days. And even at that time, I don't think celebrities would want to do that. And Survivor did okay without stunt casting. I mean... That's how it was. I mean, some casts, I mean, it, it, it's like it is now. To me, a Survivor season is only, you know, it, it really is dependent on the cast. And I think that for a long time, Survivor was able to have this pool of people that they either recruited from in, in a certain ways or took applicants from the show and made a rich tapestry each season. And sometimes people worked out. Sometimes, like Stephanie Dill in Thailand, they don't work out. But, you know, they had the best of things going in and they felt confident with what they were doing that they didn't have to necessarily call up an ex athlete or something like that. And even Gary Hogeboom in Guatemala, even though this is out of the classic era and into sort of this transitional era, like nobody really knows Gary Hogeboom as, as an athlete. I think that's still very little known. It's like, we're not, we're not, we're not there yet to that sort of stunt casting. And I think that that's a good thing. All 
All right, uh, moving on to question 29 from Brian Gold. Can you talk a bit about men versus women in the first 10 seasons? After Borneo, there's this belief that a woman can't win Survivor. But after eight seasons, nobody is really saying that women aren't as good as men anymore. Plus, some of the biggest characters in the show have been women to date. After the next 10 seasons, there's a dearth of big female players and characters. What do you think is the reason for that shift? Um, for me, I mean, yeah, there's a big lack of big female characters in those middle seasons. And the thing that I always attribute that to is the hidden immunity idols. That You start throwing in Exile Island, you start throwing in people on the island getting these idols... And inevitably, it's these big alpha males who are always getting sent to Exile Island. So the Terrys, the Ewells, these guys are going to end up with the idols. So I think they, the show kind of skews more in favor of the the males for a while there because of those idols, the first couple years of the idols. That's how I've always looked at it. And I don't want to generalize casting too much, but I feel like especially after Palau, there's more of a a generalization to cast towards those quote-unquote Macter types. And unfortunately, we're going to see a lot more of the pageant girl casting type, which is not the most interesting person to watch. And the fact that like in some of these middle seasons, they'll throw a bunch of them, a bunch of like nameless, faceless blondes out there on a season is, uh, is very tantamount to how the women are viewed in these middle seasons. Yeah, always remember that the hidden immunity idol in Exile Island and, and twists like that protect an alpha male. It's it's sort of what they're designed to do. Um, you know, a, a non-alpha male can benefit from said twists, but the, initially that is that is more toward what they're geared towards. So when you have those twists in the game, alpha males are to generally get a little bit more of a leg up. All right, here's a good one. Question thirty from Cameron Johnson. What are some great underrated Borneo moments people forget about? <laughs> I know He goes, I know that sometime before Doomsday, you guys plan on doing a Borneo commentary, but what moments should viewers be on the lookout for that don't get as much mention? Um, <clears throat> just one that, that off the top of my head is uh, they win the videos from home, and Greg Buis's sister's on there making incest jokes about how she and Greg are going to have sex with one another. <laughs> and Rudy's reactions. <laughs> yes, you got old man Rudy, who's you know struggling with the uh, different sexuality orientations as it is. Now having to sit there and watch incest videos, <laughs> so, it's just uh, no one ever mentions that when they talk about Borneo. But it always makes me laugh when I see it the, the whole incest video and Greg gleefully going along with it because that's what he and his sister do. <gasps> Uh, I, I would say a Greg moment as well, and I think there's a there's a handful of Greg moments that everyone talks about. You know the the cry, the fake crying, the numbers. Uh, some some people point out the flying fish confessional. To me, it's uh, him. I think it's in episode two, him breaking into a full rendition of something's coming from West Side Story, and like not even just like singing a snippet, doing like the entire song and like shrieking down the beach, like flinging his arms around. And I think maybe it's because it's so early on in the season that people forget about it. But it, that's that's a, that's a Greg Buis moment that I love. Uh, two things: one, uh, the the weird sexual chemistry between Greg and Colleen can't be denied, and, uh-huh. and, and it's something for people to look at. And I think the other thing that I always sort of smile when I look at, and it's things that they don't necessarily talk about overtly, but you can see it when people are doing confessionals. And just in the background of scenes is just all the different leisure activities that people are doing in Borneo. Watch for that next time you watch the the episode. Like Kelly does uh, interviews and she's like doing needlepoint or doing like a little bit of stitching, you know. And 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 you know, Sean's trying to make the bowling alley, and you can see him doing stuff like that. And just a lot of the games and stuff that people were doing 
uh, and, and things to amuse themselves in Borneo sort of show up all around. And you sort of get this very rich view of that people had things to do in their downtime. And uh, it's something that we don't really focus on in later seasons. And also, since we mentioned uh, our favorite episodes of all time and the artistry of between behind some episodes, watch the uh, Jay for Jenna episode. That's a fantastic bit of storytelling, that whole episode from start to finish. All right. Uh, season 31. Here's an interesting one from Evan DeRoche. One thing that seemed odd to me was how every female winner was disliked, while males were mostly respected. So then why during Vanuatu did the audience switch to wanting a woman to win and then hate Chris for coming out on top? And Evan adds, Chris is probably the only male winner even Jeff Probst hated. You don't mess with Julie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Probst has the hots for Julie, who got totally blindsided by Chris. So there's a huge variable in there. But as for the audience, why did they... Why did they uh, usually hate women winning, and why did they love men winning? And then the Vanuatu one kind of flips because, in general, when women win Survivor, they kind of go under the radar. They kind of hide behind someone. They play more a social game, which is not a uh, invalid or a shameful way to win Survivor at all. That's a great way to win Survivor. That's probably the best way, but it doesn't make great TV. So when the women wins like that, it's usually more subtle, something like Danny, Vesepia, where you don't see all the stuff they're doing. Now, Vanuatu is different because it's like the first Micronesia. You have this badass group of black widows kicking ass and taking names. So the women are totally dominating that season, and it's in a way that's never happened before in Survivor. So, so when we got to Vanuatu, it's, um, it's really just the same pattern that's been followed before. Like you have this dominant group of uh, people dominating the game. They slip up. This under-the-radar guy, Chris, slips in there and steals their win. And it's just the same as before. It's not a surprise that the audience didn't like that. It's just has nothing to do with male versus female. They just don't like under the radars coming in and stealing wins. So I think I I don't think the Vanuatu reaction is that surprising. And I would go and say that at the time I, I don't think it was a generalization that women were looked upon more favorably than that men were looked more looked upon more favorably than women as wins. I think the only outright popular winner of the first nine seasons was Ethan. Like Richard, as we talked about before, was not very was not you know very well liked. Brian was seen as very cold, emotionless. Was did not gain a lot of sympathy. Uh, and then you know you had as we talked about the streak of female more under the radar behind the scenes winners that for hardcore game enthusiasts were not as impressed by. So I feel like again we we have to go back to this well of Ethan and Tom in the first ten seasons were really the two big winners that everyone got behind. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, it's it's not, you know. It's not like a lot of those male winners were especially favored up, upon as well. Yeah, but again, to go back to the male versus female thing, like, women winners historically have gotten a lot of shit over the years, but it, I think it's unfair because they're not going to dominate a season. Like little Tina Weston, who weighs 100 pounds, is not going to go out there and dominate every challenge like Heidek's doing and Tom's doing. So it's really unfair that people hold the women to standards that they have to dominate to win a game because women aren't going to dominate again. That's just not how they play. So that's, that's, that's a fantastic point. It's, it's a weird, um, it's like a weird counterbalance within, especially the more active survivor community is I think that the active survivor community skews female in the sense that they, they root for females and want females to win, but yet they like people that are overtly controlling and dominating the game, which for the most time, most part isn't a female. So then you get this female winner that did more like a, I guess a more, uh, under the radar strategy to win the game, and then everyone's like, uh, I, "I don't know." 
like like not hating, but at the same time, not partic- not particularly loving. So yeah. you know, I think that probably one of the other one of the few female winners that is played like just an absolute controlling game is Kim Spradlin, and I think that she's probably one of the more popular winners of all time. Not it, just in, and respected, just because you know she did it all. Yeah, then you look at someone like Sandra, who's won twice, and she's constantly getting accused of, oh, she did nothing, or she didn't play the game. I'm like, she's fucking 2-0. and oh. Like, she is the best Survivor player ever, statistically, but she's not going to control anything. She can't control anything. She's not that type of player. So it's just, it's just unfair, the different standards that players get held to. I don't know, guys. A wise man once said, you gotta make big moves. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Uh, that was just, you are doing your Rupert impression? Sure, why not? Okay. <laughs> All right, question 32 from Charlie D. You guys said that, like, Rupert and Stephanie were the most loved at the time. After 10 seasons, who were the most hated survivors in the fan base? Jerry. Lex. Yeah, I would say Lex is a good one. I mean, Jerry through the first seven seasons, but... yeah, that Well, Lex... and after All-Stars, too. Don't forget the All-Stars. She got some flack for that, too. Oh, yeah, because yeah, she booed. was booed for telling the truth at the reunion show. Fuck her. Yeah, I would say, unfortunately, Lex. You know, Kathy had a lot of detractors at the time. A lot of people didn't like Sue and All-Stars, and they didn't, uh, unfairly probably, gave her crap for her quitting. Austin, of course, there was still a lot of backlash over quitting the game. Uh, At at the time, Clay, uh, as we talked about before, was probably, Clay Clay and Katie were probably two big finalists that were were shat upon. Those are people in the moment. I think that Jerry pervades so many season people just you know instantly are oh jerry uh, and and lex after all stars i think that those two are the big two yeah and again the recency bias there's always this recency bias if they'd held a poll of the most hated player of all time right after season 10 you know katie finishes in the top three yeah that's recency (laughs) bias but i think that you know over the time yeah all right uh question 33 from brian gold can you talk a little bit about sandra's reputation after 10 seasons yeah, it's, yeah, no one remembered her. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? I loved Sandra, but that was only because I wrote the Funny 115 and I thought she was funny. Like, I never even really thought of her as a player. I just remember her being funny. Yeah, exactly. I think I think at that moment, it was just more of everyone sighing in relief that Lil didn't win. And then they're like, okay, well, she won. You know, I don't, or, I don't, you know, especially post-All-Stars, it wasn't so much about, like, let's look back on these winners and really revel in what they did. I think it was just kind of like, okay, new season of Survivor, let's see what happens. Yeah, and it's not only thank God Lil didn't win, it was thank God Fairplay didn't win. So, yeah, Sandra kind of had the double whammy there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Sandra really didn't have a reputation. She won, and that was about it. No one really talked about her. Um, question 34 from Munib Khan. With 5 million in viewers dropped from Palau finale to Guatemala premiere, did a lot of fans just have enough of the show after five years? Damn it, Muneeb, you gave me the incorrect numbers. This is the yeah. guy. <laughs> yeah, Jay. Jay already rebutted that in the first question. So then the Muneeb Mike Bloom feud starts right now. <laughs> On air. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so uh, Jay has already rebutted that. Um, there wasn't really a five million drop. Did a lot of fans just have enough after the show of the show after five years? No, I don't think uh, I don't think the the fatigue was setting in right around there. I think it came a little later. I think when he's looking at five, I think he's looking at Palau premiere was 23.6 million viewers and Guatemala was 18.4. 
So there's your five million, but from the finale for Palau was twenty. So I mean, we're splitting hairs here. But I mean, what he's basically saying is there was a drop, and you are correct, Muneeb. There was a drop. All right, here's a here's a really interesting one. This will take some discussion. There's no way I'll pronounce this guy's last name correctly, but from Nur Sultan, uh, Kobe not getting along with Ian and Tom. Does this conflict have any deeper roots? Is it possible that Tom was subconsciously more comfortable around Ian and Greg and that in turn led to divide between Kobe and Tom and Ian? In the early seasons, Survivor was pretty subtle about people coming from different backgrounds and having different beliefs. So we might not have seen any of this. Or was Kobe really just whiny and couldn't get over the fact that he didn't have any control? So basically, was Tom more comfortable being around these alpha male athlete guys and was Kobe not being an athlete, just was Tom kind of discriminating against him, I guess is the question there. It's possible. Yeah. It's possible. Also, um, and I, I like Kobe as a, as a character and as a player as well. I think that, you know, if you're talking about underrated players in the first 10 seasons, I think Kobe should get a mention. However, Kobe, you could see from the beginning, from the before they're even tribes, you know, he sort of spearheaded the getting rid of Jonathan thing. Like, Kobe was playing from day one. You know, it's not like Kobe was sitting back just going, I hope people will sit and come to me or something like that. Kobe was actively going out and playing this game. And I think Tom sees that. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think that, you know, it was a matter of, you know, this, that, or the other thing. It was the fact that, you know, Ian was there and was playing, but Ian, I think, was not necessarily... I mean, Ian was just being Ian more than anything else. And I think that Tom perceived, I think that, you know, Tom, Tom could have been uh, subconsciously rejecting Kobe for maybe his background and, and stuff like that. But I also think that Tom perceived Kobe as a threat. Yeah, I think it was, I think it was just more of a personality conflict than anything. I mean, yeah. I, we really saw it in Kobe's editing that like, it's especially in, in, in that merge episode when he gets voted out by that point, he was just very vocally against Tom and would kind of complain and argue with him when he did everything. So as Jay said, it maybe it was something subconscious based on his background. Uh, I don't. I don't really know. I don't think there was any sort of overt homophobia going on there. I think it was they just didn't get along in terms of personalities. Yeah. Although I will say, in Nur Sultan's uh, defense, it, he points out that a little social things like that, little social cues, can have a lot a lot of impact on the yeah. game. And you are correct. I mean, I, there's no way for us to know in this case if it was true. But like, I always think back to Heidek and Helen in Thailand, like. She knew not to trust him. He was slimy, he was sleazy, but like they got along because they had a similar work ethic and she respected someone who did his work. And it's just one of those things. If you have kind of a background, you 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 do you have that bond. It's just easier. So Oh yeah, I, I I think that his his thing is super valid. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it, that could have been one of the reasons. But you know, just the fact that both of them were gunning for control from the beginning is is not necessarily gonna lead to to uh, a you know a lifelong friendship and partnership there. All right, question 36 from Logan Saunders. Was Probe still fairly well-liked by the audience after season 10, or was he crapped on as much as he is now? I think he's always kind of been crapped on, to be honest. I mean, people have always been snarky about him on the internet. Even in season one, they're calling him Jiffy Pop and making fun of him. Um, yeah. Though he was, a, he, he was an executive producer at this point, correct? Yeah, yes. he's just this figurehead that people love to poke fun at. Like everything, I think that Jeff Probst gets lionized and canonized through the years. Like, yes, we crap on Jeff Probst. That's that's uh, that's that's something that's never going to go away. But we, if you if you go back and you look at the, rewatch these seasons, just as we have, and and just as everyone should, Jeff Probst is really interesting because you could at the beginning he's not that fantastic of a host, 
and 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 that's okay. You know, he's got some television experience and hosting experience. Obviously, the Rock and Roll Jeopardy and all that other sort of stuff. But he hasn't really found his stride in those first couple of seasons in Survivor. But it's like he starts to get into Jeff Probst mode, and like Jeff Probst does do a lot of good things for the show and through the years. And I think that especially in this stretch, even in this middle stretch, I think this is probably Jeff Probst's best. Uh, seasons of survivor i mean i think he's more knowledgeable as a host even today but you know because he's executive producer and because he's you know really trying to push his own narrative onto the show it's taken on a life of its own to something i don't necessarily agree with but i think that as far as these episodes go i think that you know you're not going to find better jeff probst and sort of in these middle middle few seasons yeah, I would say once he becomes executive producer, that layers on a whole new level of hate just because I think a lot of online community especially will be like, well, we don't like the show. Jeff Probst is a figurehead and is now an executive producer, so we know that he makes decisions. Therefore, we really don't like Jeff Probst. And as you said, Jay, his narrative definitely definitely shows in some of these later seasons. But I think I agree this is a nice balance in the middle of like he knows what he's doing host-wise and he's able to still poke in and have some moments, but it's not like he's – He's coming into tribal council and being like, oh, Bobby, you should be doing this. Uh, is, is an idol going to come out tonight? I think someone should play an idol tonight. Like, it's, <laughs> it's not as overt as it is as it is now. All right. We're going to finish strong. Think you guys can do four more questions? Yeah. Yeah. All right. Number 37 from Nurse Sultan again. Um, was reaction from fans to Janu similar to the reaction people had to Austin? Who got more hate? Well, Austin, of course. Yeah, I mean, I don't, it wasn't even close. I don't think people hated Janu at all. They just kind of said, yeah, good riddance to her. But Austin was a whole different thing because he was first. And also, let's look at editing here. Janu was pretty much non-existent except for like one scene in the pre-merge when she was mopey after a storm. Other than that, she had her one big episode. Austin was seen as a complete buffoon every single episode. So by that point, people were just ridiculing him for no matter what. And not only that, but I think that people, you know, again, this is one of these eye tests and smell tests. It's like people look at Austin and I mean, Austin is a young man and he's super built. And, you know, you just you just look at him and you're like, this guy can last forever somewhere. And he didn't. Right. And then you look at Janu and Janu is uh, like a twig. <laughs> oh, Popeye. <laughs> and, and so like. People look at that, and, and I think that people, when they look at Austin versus looking at Janu, I think they're more, you know, maybe maybe not overtly, but maybe subconsciously, sort of like uh, the previous question. I think people are more subconsciously accepting of Janu breaking down and quitting versus Austin. All right, um, I'm gonna go to question thirty-eight here from Michael Cermak. After ten seasons, what do you think was the most defining moment for the series in terms of its longevity? Um, he wrote a, more, uh, a bunch more, but I'm just going to stop there. That's his question. What do you think was the most defining moment for the series in terms of its longevity? I'm uh, I'm going to be stereotypical here and go with rats and snakes. <laughs> no, just because, I mean, it, it was, A, it was a water cooler moment, so it got people talking, really talking about the show, but B, like I talked about in the beginning here, I think it was a great representation about, like, what the tricky thing about playing Survivor is, about how like y- you need to balance out these these friendships and these close bonds you make with the ideal goal of getting to the end and winning a million dollars. So I think it's a nice representation of what the game is, and it was just a great TV moment as well. I think the uh, just the overwhelming success of season two. Yeah, and that, I was going to say the yeah the rats and snakes is uh, is a good one. Season two is a good one. The whole Colby. Tina loyalty decision is an interesting one. I'm just going to go one more season and say 
Ethan winning, which we touched on earlier, that they finally produced a popular winner. And that was a big deal because I, I wasn't sure it was ever going to happen. And again, you got to reiterate, Tina was not that popular. All right, uh, going down to question 39 from Chris Madison. If Survivor All-Stars were done in, say, season 12 or something as opposed to 8, with all the same people, would it still have been as emotionally charged? Um, my opinion would be the first All-Stars was always going to be emotionally charged. It doesn't matter if it was season 8 or season 20. Just It had to happen because you had all the egos building up behind the scenes, and it was just bound to crack. So the answer is yes, but I think the question is faulty because if they do Survivor All-Stars after season 12, you can't just have the people from the first eight. Exactly. People Bob would, Dog, be, yeah. people yeah, would be left Dog. out and Rob would not be in, uh, Boston Rob would not be in, yeah. in All-Stars with no, season 12. N- no more six people from Survivor Australia. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, Tom Westman's there over Boston Rob easily. Yep. Um, okay, and we are down to our final question. And this is a pretty easy one to end on. From Logan Saunders. Was there ever the perception that producers would run out of good characters to cast on the show? Have you seen Coach? <laughs> yeah. Coach was just waiting in the wings. No, because I mean, if you think about it, the premise of Survivor is they throw everyday ordinary people onto an island and just watch them play this game. And so the hero of the of the show was not necessarily the people, it was the game and the structure. The structure produces characters. So if you cast the right people, anybody could be a star in the show. It just it depends on what which types of their personality the game will bring out. So no, I don't think there was ever a danger they'd run out of characters because the game is the character. The game will generate characters out of how evil it is. Yeah, I, I, I would say we'll probably talk about this more as we get to the middle seasons where casting gets a little more questionable. Uh, Survivor had a great thing going in terms of its cast, and we talk a lot about these early seasons about how there really isn't like the Tonys or even the coaches of like these really larger than life people the philip shepherds of like they're clearly a portion of them are playing up to the cameras we really don't see that in these first seasons because the concept is let's take real people and like you said mario their personality traits come out through playing the game and i think the producers had a lot of confidence in that concept still who knows maybe when we talk about guatemala we might glance on that as well about maybe around those those middle seasons cook islands is probably the big one they start realizing, like, oh, m- maybe we're not getting characters out of people. Let's intentionally go for people that we know are going to be good TV. Yeah, at a certain point, it's pretty obvious the producers lose faith in the concept itself to be able to generate the show. It's, I'm not sure when exactly it happens, but it's pretty clear it happens at some point between 10 and 20, where they just lose faith that the show itself, the game itself, is interesting enough to produce characters. And I think that's it. We went through 40 listener questions. I think that's a record. That's good. We did well. Yeah, yeah. and good, good questions from you guys. Thank you for sending those in. Um, I think that's it. Um, do you guys have anything else to add? No, I thought this was a... It was good to go back and do, and do a, a listener questions because we do... You know, it, it's sad because we do invite you know, people to write into the show and stuff like that, and then we summarily just, you know talk for three hours and don't get to your questions so it's always good to do these every once in a while especially for these first 10 seasons like you brought up mario i think a lot of people are you know recent joiners of the fan base and they might have joined around the russell era or they might just not remember they might be younger when the earlier seasons aired so i think it's really nice to contextualize 
these seasons since I mean, you guys talked about Vandal, uh, uh, Borneo, what, like two and a half, maybe <laughs> even three years ago. So, like, to to kind of wrap wrap everything up in a nice little bow before we move into the weird college years is a is a nice wrap up. I think we need to coin this the college years. The college years, yes. This is where Jesse Spano gets addicted to the caffeine pills. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> like like uh like Jesse Spano for Guatemala we were both so excited and so scared. Um, that's like an into the woods reference, you know? So like it's it's just it works on so many levels. Are you implying that Stephen Sondheim took his stuff from Saved by the Bell? No, I I think the the the, the other way around, but you know, whatever. <laughs> All right, and with that little bit of nerddom, I think we are ready to move into Guatemala. So uh, I want to thank you guys for tuning in and listening and for being listeners of the Survivor Historians. As always, uh, you can check us out on Facebook. We have a page there. You can email us at uh, survivorhistorians at gmail.com. You can write to us on Facebook or in the group previously on Survivor. If you have not joined that group, you should. It's a fantastic and fun group. And I have a thread on Survivor Sucks where you can uh, give us feedback there, too. So plenty of ways to reach us. And uh, I think that's it. Any, any, any final comments before we sign off? Oh, is this where I do my major league thing? Ah, no. It's not the best color man in the business for nothing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I just got to say, fuck Rhino. <laughs> oh, we're still doing that? I thought we'd, we'd turned on Dirk this podcast. It's still Rhino. <laughs> Oh, we can we can fuck Dirk as well. <laughs> I, well, that's now we're going a little too far on that one, but okay. <laughs> All right, so that's it. That's it for the Survivor Historians. Thank you, and have a pleasant tomorrow. Goodbye. Okay, Jenna, I'll take your rock. Jenna, why don't you just leave it open? <laughs> just leave, here, leave it open and turn it around. <laughs>